Welcome to episode 51 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. There are a lot of firefighter certificate factories out there giving candidates a raw deal, and it shows when they hit recruit classes. They can't be guaranteed to be given real skills training there either because they're regulated to take the same JPR and CYA boxes for themselves. Once they land in their stations, crews are telling them to forget everything they've learned and follow the way they do things. Since most departments aren't unified in their tactics, they're getting a mixed bag of training scars passed along to them with what might be good intentions but poor application. If they seek to take ownership of their own training and growth, which they need to, they can try and navigate the minefield that is the internet, hoping to step on as few beat-the-prop and parking lot and apparatus floor gimmicks as they can. The final fantasy is that they can ease into the job by running calls and figure it out. But the harsh reality is, the fires don't care and there are plenty of new recruits that run heavy calls right out of the gate. It's bad enough to not be sure of yourself in a job like this, but it's worse to not be able to trust the systems and the people around you to properly prepare you. Southwest Fire Academy is aware of all this, and they know that you can deliver real training and meet all the required standards by having a cadre of solid instructors, offering vetted content, and having an effective, well-appointed facility. The people at SFA are as genuine and passionate as they come and I'm proud to call them family. Here's my chat with Jesse and Gord. Gord, you can tell me a bit about your family and your background and your upbringing. So when I was real young, I lived in a really small town, southern Ontario, Lake Erie area, and mom worked the board education. She was a secretary, worked a lot of long hours. Dad was a factory worker, so when things were going well, worked a lot of hours, worked overtime, sports guy, learned a lot of sports from him, followed him around had a really good, solid home life and upbringing my whole life and moved to Tilsonburg when I was just pre-high school kind of thing. Went to Tilsonburg, met a lot of lifelong friends that I still have that are in the fire service. And yeah, that's where I got my taste of the fire service was through high school. How was school in general for you? School, I would say was a good experience all in all. I really learned from the good instructors, the good teachers, I guess I'm using instructors as fire service, but the good teachers, you had teachers that you could tell really didn't care. And then there was other teachers that really cared. And I found that if I was interested and engaged, then I excelled. I was like a 90, 95 student. If I wasn't engaged or I didn't like it, I was a D, C at best student kind of thing. I learned a lot about myself and I learned that when I liked something, I dove in and those teachers that nurtured that and brought that passion and experience to me, I still carry to this day and that's how I like to teach. I'll take an interest in you. I'll be passionate about it. And if you put the effort in, I'm going to be there to support you a hundred percent. So what about sports and hobbies as a kid and Um, teenager? Team sports. So baseball, hockey, pretty much my whole life growing up, not super competitive levels or anything, more recreational and fun levels, but still have those lifelong friends. I'm going to talk about one of them a little bit later on today that uh, we've grown up together since we're four and Jesse knows them, Ted and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was good. Just team sports, team environment, win as a group, lose as a group. Doesn't matter about the individual performance. It's the team performance. And that helps shape you too. Yeah. hundred percent. If you don't show up ready to come to work or ready to go to, to play, then you're hurting the team and you don't want to let the team down. What about you, Jesse? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Barrie, similar to Gord, a little bit different with my dad. He was around a little bit into construction and whatnot, but in and out of prison a lot of my childhood. Mom was kind of a saint. She ran a daycare, so that was kind of nice getting to stay there before I went to school. 
and she would work bars at nighttime and manage bars, and then she was also putting herself through school to become a teacher. So I think I got a lot of my work ethic watching her grow up, and like I said, she's just a saint and did everything, raising two kids on her own. Did you have trouble in school or was it a pretty good experience for you? Yeah, early school for sure. Definitely struggled until about grade seven, grade eight, and then I really flourished and and found it to be quite easy. And then in high school, I found it pretty easy. I could pass everything, no problem. It was more into sports and stuff. I mean, it was kind of a negative thing. I look back now and I didn't prepare myself. I never studied for exams or tests or anything because I knew I could kind of just pass. So now I don't know how to study properly and whatnot. It's a little bit more difficult because I, I never prepared myself for that. Yeah, I was just talking to my captain last night, actually, who was just on 50 and 49. And we were talking just about that. Like he found school fairly easy and knew the system so he could write the papers and get them done and get them in and get A's. But he was never really pushing himself like or being pushed to his limit of where he could be challenged and have to work super hard and maybe achieve that higher level. So it was interesting how that the school system, if you're doing well, they're like, oh, you're doing well. They can't always have the focus energy on you to like push you where you need to go individually. Or the things that you look at now, like I didn't care about French, so I didn't take it seriously. I didn't try. And now I pay to learn languages. So such an opportunity that you had and you don't realize that as a teenager. Did friends in sports keep you sort of on the right path and the right track? Were you in with a good group? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't start drinking until later on. Yeah. So what kept you from that, do you think? Was that internal inside of you? Was that your mom's influence? Yeah, probably my mom and dad's influence. Actually, like me and my dad are really close and he's doing really well now. But watching his life decisions, I think, really influenced the way I went. Not getting into drugs and not getting into trouble. I was always petrified of doing anything wrong. So... It was pretty straight edge. And what about guides and mentors for you? You mentioned them briefly there and then exposing to the fire service. I'm going to start with like my mom and dad. They started with that solid foundation. I was lucky I had that family, grandparents, the whole bit. Like my grandparents worked hard. They had a store. When I was five years old, I'd be in the store stocking shelves. And like, I think I was awesome. I think I was just getting babysat, but, right. um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but I'm not I, getting paid. Yeah. But I, I, I put an, I put an apron on. So I consider that when I started working. So, and then on my aunt's farm and things like that, you know what I mean? Like working on a farm, you want to get paid, you get paid by the day. Right. And putting and, effort in was and, part of life. And you had to, if you didn't put the effort in, then again, same thing. You let the team down and everybody was behind. Behind. But mentors go back to in high school and Robin Barker was one high school teacher I had. He was in English and, and whatnot. And unfortunately he passed away from cancer a few years ago, but he took all of us misfits that were like those C and D students. And he really inspired us. And I can remember having to write a story one time. And I, and that was not Gord's thing. Like I was not a sit down and write a story kind of thing. And I forget what it was, but I just wasn't into it. And he said, well, what are you interested in? And at the time, military, stuff like that. So he goes, write a story about the military, make it fiction. Even though that wasn't the curriculum, I had an A and, and it was great. And I look at those teachers and go, okay, so now I know that if I'm interested, I can apply myself to what I'm interested in. I can be very successful versus just that C and D student kind of floating through and doing enough to get by. Yeah. Even though there are some things you have to do, right? you can focus a lot on the things you want to do. And you do that and you get it done. Mentors in the fire service, and I'll kind of jump over to there and talk about friends and I'm going to go all over the place sure. here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. In the fire service specifically, and Jesse's heard me tell these stories a couple of times, there's two people in the fire service that really shaped me very early on 
to what I think I am today and what my attitudes and my expectations and things like that are. And that was at the time to senior firefighters in my volunteer firehouse, Larry Crossett and Terry Salins. And Larry was the old crotchety senior firefighter in a firehouse that when the new guy came on, it was like, this is where the toilet brush is, kid. This is it. When you would get calls, you better know where your equipment is on the truck. You better know what you're doing. He's not going to talk to you and say, hey, how are you? What are you doing? If he grunts at you, it's a good day kind of thing. Right. <laughs> but the way he carried himself with making sure he always knew what was going on, he knew his job inside and out. He knew the equipment inside and out. You didn't beat him very often to a nozzle. Nobody did because he was like, there's a fire. I'm going to get this fire. And and I was like, I want to be like that guy. Yeah, he didn't use his years on position and a front to hide behind and then have all the expectation on you. So he had equal or more expectation on himself and wanted to bring you up. More on himself. like, And he held himself to a very high standard. And, and as he went through the ranks and became a captain and took people underneath, I remember him and Terry Salins were, they kind of came up together and we followed them, right? Like we were after them. And Larry and Terry, they both had crews. And I was in Delta Company. I was in Terry's and Alpha. My buddy Ted that we'll talk about, I'm sure a little bit later today, was in Alpha Company under Larry. And we learned from those guys like no tomorrow. And if you had a question and you wanted to ask, they'll spend all day talking fire with you so that you'll be better. I'll never forget, there was a house fire on Broadway in Tilsonburg and it was a hot, hot fire. The two guys that jump off the back of the truck were the two newest guys on the department. It was myself and another firefighter, Kevin Vandeviever. He's worked through and made it to Guelph now full time. And we jumped off the truck and it was back again in the days you didn't necessarily have an officer go. So it was just the two of us go into this hot, dark fire, get a good knockdown on it as the two new guys on the job. And when we came out, I'll never forget Larry come up to us. And it was the first time he kind of smiled and said, good job. Nice. And that was like... Thank God I've made it. Like, <laughs> like, like, yeah. I've just ascended to another plane because yeah. Larry actually said to me, good job. Your first crucible. You know? yeah. yeah. So when you talk about that mentoring and things like that, it was pride and ownership that he had. He was in the firehouse when he didn't have to be in the firehouse, cleaning the trucks, working on projects, doing car wash. Like it was everything that I thought and what I've learned to be. And I say to a lot of guys, I've learned as much as I've learned from the good mentors, I've learned a ton from terrible mentors or more. Right. (laughs) And a lot of times, like I've learned from officers and chiefs and things like that, how not to treat people, how not to get something accomplished, (laughs) take that for what it's worth. But it's so important. And because of those things and those guys that were there, and I'm going to talk about Terry a little bit more in depth too, because he went right through to be a senior firefighter to me, to a captain, to a platoon chief, to a deputy chief, to a fire chief. Wow. And I've served under him for that entire duration. A lot of trust and understanding is built over that time. Yeah. And what I've learned is you have to genuinely care about your people because those two men genuinely cared. It was job first, their people, then them. And that was the way it was. And that was instilled kind of in me that we're here to do a job and we're here to serve. As soon as they took that officer leadership role, it was all about making us better. You learn that role if you watch them. And what I've learned over the years, and and again, I've tried to emulate is when things are going well, you lead from the back. You let the troops stand out in front because they're the ones making it right. 
right? And when things go sideways, then you get out in front, you take the shit, and then you come back and you deal with it in private in the firehouse and try to make it a little bit better. I've seen other officers and other fire chiefs that do the exact opposite and they lose their crews and the people don't respect them. And again, you learn how not to do things sometimes as well. The term tough love comes to mind. And for me, the word tough and the word love are equally important. You can't have one or the other. You need both for people to survive and do well. I I just go back and and it's a little bit emotional when you go back because Terry's passed from a line of duty death cancer. And I worked with him right up to the two weeks before he died. Like I actually took his position as an acting fire chief when he went off and stuff like that. So, so we've had a really awesome relationship. And when you say to somebody like you're my dad in the fire service, like he's my dad in the fire service. Right. Right. So loved, loved that man. And when you see the passion that he had for the fire service, and then the next step with Terry was he was involved in training. And I mean, I can go on, we could do 17 podcasts about how great Terry was and what he's done in the programs and the training and all of those different things. But everything that he did was job first, people second, him third. And I think if you actually talk to Sue and his kids, they would say the same thing. I know at the end that they were frustrated because he wanted to still come to work when he really should have been spending time with his family, but he loved it. He loved that place so much. So it must've been hard to like, cause he saw the fire service as his family too. So he's oh, trying yeah. to spend time with both those families. And I think looking back at it, he felt as long as he was doing that, he was okay. Mm. Right. You know what I mean? Like there was, there maybe was it helped stuff, him uh, hold yeah. on longer. Yeah. Could have not just myself, like Jesse's met him and, as far as like Southwest Fire Academy, when it first started, he was a tremendous supporter, stood up for us when nobody else would, because we were the new kids on the block. Who are these idiots that think that they can do this thing? And people and, don't necessarily want yeah. you to thrive. Right. No. Oh, no. It's, no. It, you've, you've got to overcome obstacles and whatnot. And Terry was always 100% supportive to the point where when we were in Delhi and would have boot camps and pre-service students come in. Even if he wasn't teaching, it wasn't uncommon for the fire truck to show up at the school and him just come in and he would just talk to the students and just an amazing human that loved the fire service and taught me so, so much. Right. And as an officer, as a deputy chief, as a fire chief, how to handle people, mm. how to manage people and how to treat people with respect. And he got the most out of us. Nice. Absolute legend. Yeah. So what about you? We talked about a friend group and obviously sports with their coaches, with their teachers, like who were setting the examples for you along the way? Definitely lots, lots and lots. I can go on all day with everybody, but growing up, I was lucky. It was in a big extended family, big family cottage. So all my cousins and stuff, Brad Neely, he's one of our partners at, at Southwest Fire Academy. And he taught me a lot about life and stuff. And getting into the fire service is really where I track. And my mother, obviously, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, I learned a lot from her and very intelligent woman. But Gord is definitely my biggest mentor in the fire service. And like you said, he's kind of my dad, right? I uh, call him my fire father. I don't want to offend anyone, but he uh, taught me right from the beginning. I started with a co-op. He was a full-time firefighter at the time. And when we met, we just, I don't know, seemed to be like glue. Every time I'd come in, I'd be hoping that he'd be on shift on overtime if it wasn't his shift because he would just take that time and teach me everything that I wanted to learn or didn't even know about. And so it was really fortunate. And then I got hired right out of there on a volunteer department and Brent Sterling would be my other big mentor in the fire service and, and the chief now, Sean Amer. 
they're really big mentors as well. And I could go on all day, but right from the beginning, they've always been there. Yeah. What was the first exposure to the fire service though? Like what led it in you where that's what you wanted to do? Since I was two years old, apparently as soon as I started talking, that's apparently all I ever talked about. So like all my grandfathers, great grandfathers were firefighters and chiefs and whatnot. Some cousins were in the fire service as well. Even my mom and dad, my dad pulled an old lady out of a, an apartment fire. So just kind of runs in the blood. My mom went into an apartment fire in Midland and after work one day and stopped the fire. It was just a small incipient stage and a kitchen fire, but she went in as people were coming out and crawled under the smoke. So kind of funny, just runs in the blood really. And what about you, Gord? What's the first exposure for you? I didn't have any of that family exposure to the fire service. They weren't into it, but I'll never forget, probably in grade two or three at that little public school in Vienna that I talked about earlier. And one of the teacher's husbands was a volunteer firefighter. And one day he showed up at the school with a fire truck and everybody went outside and looked at the fire truck. And I remember he took the hose and sprayed it against the wall of the school. I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) Like that was it. And then always after that was very interested in it. And then when the opportunity in high school to be a co-op student presented itself, I did it. And then I just never left. Even when I was done school, I never left the firehouse. I just hung around with the guys. So so that was that. So you touched on when you first met Gore, but maybe between the two of you, like talk to me about how, when you guys met, maybe a bit more from how it was from your perspective and how that relationship has grown. And we can get into SFA and how that started out, but I want to know sort of how you guys took off. I looked at it as my first experience in the firehouse and the firehouse culture, the real one was in co-op. And that's where I was first exposed at co-op to Larry Crossett, Terry Salins, Larry Staley was another one that was in there. These guys took the time with this stupid high school kid and actually made it so that it was a welcoming place and I wanted to be there. And Johnny Kovacs is another one that would show you, like I I could go, there's a list, I'm, I'm leaving a hundred people out. But as a co-op student, they took me in and I wanted to give the same thing. So if I'm a firefighter in Midland at the time when Jesse and I met and he came in as a co-op student, I wanted to do what those guys did for me. If he wasn't interested and he wanted to come and sit and watch TV and watch a movie and just run on the fire truck, well, then that was the effort he was going to get out of me. But I was going to start by, hey, this is what we can do. And I think I always pretty much had stuff lined up. Oh, every every day. If I knew he was coming in, it was like, okay, we're doing this, this, this. And it made me better too. That's what I tell people. It's always reps for me. It's another rep for me. Sets and reps for me. And I'll be honest, I started cutting my teeth teaching as an instructor because what am I doing? I'm bringing this young person along. And I'll never forget that we would do drills like every day. I'd make them do PPE drills and SCVA drills, and I would do them right alongside with them, sets and reps. And the little bugger was getting better than me and quicker. So, so I this was, can't happen. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, this can't happen. So I'll, I'll never forget the one day I filled his boots up with water, so hoping that he would stop and dump them out. And I would just keep going. He didn't even dump them out. He just kept going, had wet feet, had water sloshing <laughs> everywhere. And I was like, okay, all right. Speaks he, to his character. Yeah, he, he can do this. All right. But yeah, that, that was it for me. And he wanted to pick up what was getting laid down. So let's do this. So maybe expand on from your side of things, how it was for you. It was very much like he said, I was super excited when he was there. And he was just one of those guys I knew I wanted to be like him in the fire service. Very intelligent. And I don't think I'll ever be quite there, but the passion, at least wanting to do that training and the way he was with me, I, I think that inspired me to want to get into the instructing side as well. Subconsciously at the time, I didn't know that. And then, yeah, I always kind of stayed in contact. Not as much. He took some other roles on and moved around the province a little bit. And I'll let you kind of talk about how you started 
Southwest Fire Academy, but when he let me know about it and asked if I was interested in being involved, I was more than happy and excited. And I was like, well, what do you want me for? What what can I offer? So I kind of feel very fortunate that I was... I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> been regretting it every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But when we really started and went through the process of getting our proper license through the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities, I mean, it was quite a journey and we pretty much lived at that school. We really did for a couple of years. I did literally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you <laughs> yeah. literally did. I had yeah. a house, but it was, yeah. I wasn't there a couple of times a month, maybe. It was three hours. So I was always at the academy and just going through that, we became really close. And again, just got to continuously keep learning from them, which was amazing. I think where you live is a key point too, because now your house is literally, you can see your place pretty much from yeah, the academy. Yeah, it was so. my elementary school. Right. The, the, academy, the academy was your elementary now, yeah, school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really cool connection there, yeah. right? So you've got a personal investment and a nostalgia and a heart that lives in that place. Absolutely. And, and it's kind of old school. It's very similar to like an old firehouse, like in my head anyway. So right. it's kind of kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> Touch on then what led up to, I mean, you can talk a bit about your career and your roles. And then when you finally decided to like, what made it like, I want to start an academy and then maybe touch on, you called up Jesse. So what led you to, to pick the people you picked? This is a long talk because this kind of went around the corners a couple of times. So I was the fire chief in Bayham Township. I'd worked with the office of the fire marshal as an instructor at the fire college prior to that. Took a role as the full-time fire chief in that Bayham Township was the place that I grew up where Mr. Hosel sprayed the water on the fire truck. So it was a heart go home kind of thing. And to go and be able to be the fire chief was pretty interesting. And during that time, Terry Salins was the deputy chief in Tilsonburg. And we started with Jeff Van Rybrook. He's now training in central Elgin. He was in Tilsonburg and then he was the fire chief in Southwest Oxford at the time. And we decided, you know what, we need to get training for our volunteers our firefighters that needs to be decent. And we started doing it through the fire department and we put together a couple of fire departments. We started doing joint recruit training for volunteers all together. And it was through the municipal and through the fire departments was kind of like the seed was planted, but always on the side of that, one of the transformational moments in my fire department career was Gary Kendall's death in uh, Point Edward in water ice training. And my role with the office of the fire marshal at the time as an instructor, I was responsible for the water and ice program. And we had just redone it in 2009, like literally finished it months prior to that happening. So with the Crown and the police and Ministry of Labor, I was a key person on the investigation that looked at everything guided a lot of the, okay, what do these standards mean? When we read this standard, what does it actually mean? And I mean, I could spend a day on just talking about what I learned from that process, but what I learned was 99% of fire departments, fire chiefs are woefully underprepared for what kind of scrutiny comes out of one of these investigations and how deep the dive is. It always happens to someone else until it's happening to you. Correct. So being part of that deep dive, I learned a lot. And I learned one of the key things is it's not one thing that causes a firefighter fatality. It's 12. And if we can take two of those things and correct them prior to that event, then we don't have a death. We have an injury. Right. If we take four of those things and correct them through planning and things like that, then we don't have an injury. We have a near miss. If we take six of those things and plan 
we don't have a near miss, we have a safe training evolution kind of thing. So I learned kind of that thing. And, and at the end of it, then what came out of that for me personally was there is a massive gap in the fire service right now. I got to back up to this part too, because this is critical. At the time, we're talking 2009, 2010, NFPA standards weren't adopted in Ontario at that time yet. We had the old fire service, Ontario fire service standards, right? So there was standard for firefighter, all those different standards that were there. When we did this investigation, they looked at those standards and for water and ice rescue, I think there were two sentences that spoke to it and it mostly spoke to swift water. So there was nothing. So then they went to the NFPA standard, the Ministry of Labor and the investigators and started looking at NFPA. And I remember in the meetings asking the question, how can we look at these standards when they're not enforced? And at the time I was an advocate to transition out of the Ontario stuff and let's get with the rest of the world and go to the NFPA standards. But I was like, this isn't fair to whack somebody with a baseball bat if we're not telling you ahead of time that we're going to use these standards. They do, and they will use them because it's industry best practice and the people that are doing that should be aware of it and should yada, yada, yada. So that was important. So I knew that there was a huge void there, that nobody was doing it. And the school started out kind of after we were doing that stuff through the municipality, there was still a void for rope rescue and water rescue. And a couple of us got together in a basement and decided we're going to do some quality training according to NFPA. We're going to have the right instructor ratios. We're going to have safety plans. We're going to have competent instructors and we're going to use safe gear. And that's how the fire academy started. It was in a basement with probably $50 between a couple of guys. And if you would have told me in that basement on that day that this is where we would be today, I would have never believed you. So how did you call in your circles? Like, we got to do this. We need people. Who is your dream team? Initially, it was myself and Jeff Van Rybrook back in the day. It was the two of us. And then we wanted to bring a couple more guys in. So we brought just a couple more guys that were doing some training with us and stuff like that. Again, you got to remember back in the day, it was just like, hey, who wants to do this? Who wants to learn? And we kind of built it. Then during that process, I went from Bayham to Burlington as a training officer as it was growing. Once I was in Burlington, I met a guy that was a recruiter for training division down in the U.S. and Brad Lowen. And he was like, hey, Brad's looking for an opportunity. A lot of the students are Canadian, looking for an opportunity to have somebody do provide training up here. So we kind of partnered up with them. And again, it was happenstance. It was by accident. So we partnered up with training division. We got the campus up and running. We ran our very first course in 2016. And about 10 days into the 16-day program, we had a visit from the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities asking us all about what we're doing, where we're going. And you got to remember, Gord's a dumb fireman, right? So I'm sitting here, hey, I take the guy by the hand, show him everything we're doing. I'm proud as punch. Like, right. hey, this is what we're doing. Sure. And then he says, you know, you're breaking about 17 regulations wow. and laws and stuff like that. So it was like, he could shut us down, like right there, right then, that minute. And I said to him, I said, and he said to me, after he goes, the fact that you were so honest with me, I'm giving you guys a break. He knew and you I, were leading from the right place. Yeah. And what he said was, it's clear you obviously have no idea what you're supposed to be doing <laughs> right, as far yeah. as the, the laws and the regulation <laughs> right, goes. Yeah. 
and, and that you would have followed them if you knew. Yeah, and, yeah. and I said, but what I had said to him is if you shut us down today, then these students, these 16 or 18 students, I can't yeah, I think remember, Jesse. Maybe my, 20. Maybe something. 20. There was, there was a lot. We're going to screw these people over that have taken time away from their lives. And we have their certification testing already set up. And this is the beauty part about the government that I learned. The left hand doesn't talk to the right hand because we'd went through the office of the fire marshal, got our stuff done. They were coming in to do the testing. I thought we were gold, but there was a whole nother ministry that <laughs> was like, hey, hold on. So anyway, long story short, be honest with people because he was like, okay, finish, but don't run another one until you get your ducks in a row. So then with all of that, we started the 19, 20 month process mm -hmm. of getting registered with no students. And so all the front end cost and effort. Yeah. So with that, we continued for about four more years in a partnership with training division, if you will, where they, cause they had invested all that equipment and time and, and the money. And we provided the Ontario specific quality instructors and things like that. So that morphed over that four years to where we took that whole Ontario operation over. And we still, again, I just talked to Brad the other day via text and stuff like that. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be where we are today. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, now it's kind of funny. We're competitors for the market of the students going to Texas, but at the same time, we respect each other. And and I was a graduate from training division. And, and, Me as well. And yeah. so was Jesse. So, There's room in the pool. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. so uh, again, I think it comes down to being honest and respectful and, and it's helped us get to where we are. Jesse, were you instructing already, like before you guys reconnected and got the call? Like what were you doing work-wise? Yeah, right before that, I started teaching first aid and CPR, and that's kind of how I started in the instructor role. And then I did that for maybe a year or so, maybe a little bit less. And then I took a training officer position in the Middle East. So I went out to Abu Dhabi, primarily Abu Dhabi, but all around the UAE and some other countries close by. And we're training guys on the oil rigs, some basic rope rescue and some basic fire suppression and stuff like that. So I was there for about a year. And then when I got back, that's when Gord was really starting the academy and he shot me a message. And How'd that opportunity come up to go overseas? And then what was the experience like versus what you thought it was going to be like? And what did you bring back? Kind of right time, right place. Actually, the guy that I was talking about earlier, Brent Sterling, he had the opportunity, He, but he was too busy. So he said, hey, I got this young kid that might be interested. And the owner of the company's like, well, we, we like the gray hair a little bit more and a little bit more experience. He's like, no, just meet with them and see. So, Give him a chance. Yeah. So I ended up taking it and it, it went well. It was, I loved the experience and the culture and everything. It was frustrating from an ethical point of view. It was challenging. Because, were standards different and you were... Well, standards were different and that's why they bring in Canadian and American and British companies and whatnot because of the standards were kind of viewed in any way in firefighting. They said that Canadian firefighting had the highest standards in the world. So they would look to bring in Canadian instructors. But more so like being on the actual oil rigs, because if you're doing training, then production's not being done. Production's not being done. Money's not being made. And I, I don't know if these numbers are true, but at the time I was told that if you shut down the rig for an hour, it was like $5 million loss in profit, which I, I don't seems a little that high. kind of tracks is accurate to me. <laughs> yeah, it could be, right? But yeah. Especially the price it, of gas right now. Well, like $2 yeah. a liter. <laughs> yeah. Now it's $10 million an hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're, the training, the rig managers wouldn't, want you to do the training they just say oh just sign them off we're fine or get it done quick or get it done quick right, right. so you had to come up with a system where you could kind of appease both you're like well no we still have to do this 
but what if we did it this way? So you'd still have to show them all the stuff and because you, you want to train them properly, right? If you don't, then what happens if, again, most of it was like a form of rope rescue and if someone does need help, well, you're not going to have that training that you need. So it was tough that way for sure. But good of you at a young age to have that awareness because you could have just been young and naive and go, to, okay, whatever you want. Right, and still get paid the exact same and then just get to read a book on the rig or whatever. As right, but to it's obviously working. in your core that, that part of like, we need to do this properly. Absolutely. Which yeah. tracks forward to what you're doing right now and working with the college. So, yeah, so then you got the call and then talk to me about the process, those months you said about getting things up and running. How was it on your end? Yeah, it was pretty tough. Again, you can kind of, I don't know why you gave me the call, but. <laughs> well, I just knew that he was working overseas. I knew that he was doing training. I knew that we were looking for decent people. And from our experiences, he was a good kid. And I thought, let's do that. We were still kept in contact. He went and beat up fat Elvis in Vegas at Sarah's and my wedding. He might've been a little bit intoxicated, but he still, <laughs> still looked out for me. So it was one of those things that we stayed in touch and it was good. And he came and he's a good firefighter. And that's what we want solid people that can do this stuff. And he was instructing at the time. So it's one thing to build academies or crews or any business with your friends, but if they're not good at the job of that, you need to be done, that's not going to work. And the people that come out of the woodwork that want a t-shirt, I could fill stadiums, stadiums with yeah. t-shirt wares, right? right? But it was people that wanted to come and put the effort, the time and the work into it, right? To get it growing. So maybe just like between the two of you, like give me a Cole's notes on the logistics just to run live fire is a lot. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Joe, talk to me about yeah. the logistics and then maybe dive a bit into you're getting these realizations, these epiphanies of how the actual governmental world works and what you have to meet. So how are you navigating all that? Running a live fire evolution. I'd been a training officer. I'd been a fire chief. I've been doing training by this point for 10, 12 years probably. So running a live fire evolution, no problem. Just put the right people in place, have a safety officer, have them checking it, have competent instructors, have a pump operator follow your 1403 basic checklists and you're good to go. We're good to go with that. That wasn't the problem. How to run training safely for us wasn't the problem. The problem was the regulations and the government stuff that came to light. So once we were basically given an order to shut down and then they said, okay, here's all the things that you have to go through and do that process to get the school accredited was, I want to say 17 or 19 months with just pure stupidity where you don't hear back from the people. You fill out something, you send it in, and then you're months and months waiting to hear back. And then they tell you, oh, no, this isn't good because you didn't do this. And it's like, well, we had to pass that step to get this done. So you know that it's done. And they're, oh, yeah, yeah sorry. And, and they're, they're claiming how important it is, but oh, yeah. they're not but they didn't, with the urgency that you well, need. No urgency. No I'll, I'll urgency. say this. There is no urgency because they either they're way too busy, I don't know, or they just don't care. But- yeah, I could go on. They for care hours. enough to shut you down, though. In their defense, we were a hundred percent in violation of the laws and regulations of the province of Ontario, unknowingly at the time, but a hundred percent we <laughs> we were. So, I mean, it was everything. So it's like, okay, I, I can remember sending lesson plans, and they're like, okay, you need to send us lesson plans. Well. Everything's based on at the time it was like IFSTA five or six curriculum, whatever the old textbook was. And you know how you have the instructor packages with the training and we're talking recruit firefighter training. So we're like, okay, yeah, we bought the package. Here's all the lesson plans. Well, no, now write all your own. 
okay, so write them all. So I got very good at referencing standards and writing standards and or not writing the standard, but reading JPRs the standards, and... writing the JPRs, writing the lesson plans, matching it, correlating it, using matrices to correlate all those things. But it took hours and hours and hours in front of a computer. And then the frustration of send the stuff in and not even hear back, not even hear back, not even hear back. And then, okay, well, this is wrong now. And well, this is wrong now. And then I want these three more things. Well, I was like, if you would have told me that we needed these six things, I would have been working on these other three while the two months have passed between our last correspondence. So it was a struggle. And the whole time, remember, we're not teaching. And we have a facility, we have a school, we have equipment. We're not teaching. So there's no revenue. And that almost killed us before we were out of the gate. But we persevered. We did it. We worked through it. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I'll never forget. It was January 17th, 2017 was the date that I got the email that said we had a license. And I think we may have brought beer to the, it's a yeah, dry campus. Yeah. <laughs> and we may have had some beers and a barbecue that day um, at, at the school. So, but yeah, January 17th, that was like, oh my God, now we can go and we can start. But it was a challenge. My perspective was I was the one doing the paperwork a lot of the time, mostly and, and stuff because of my background as a fire chief and in the OFM, I kind of knew how to navigate that world a little bit, but boy, oh boy, I'd never want to do it again. <laughs> so who is handling acquiring equipment and figuring out maintenance and records for that and PPE? Like how do you guys manage all that? We have a couple of computer programs that we use to track all of our inventory. As far as purchasing of equipment and doing things, like Bunker Gear has a 10-year life for live fire, right? We purchase 10 sets a year to kind of keep them always going, but we don't get 10 years. If we're, We'll get three to five years out of a set of Bunker Gear because we're putting so many people through. But we quickly learned that for a lot of the other training, we can use expired gear that fire departments are just looking to get rid of. So we have rooms full of expired bunker gear that we do for search and rescue, survival, hose handling. stuff that really beats it up. Yeah. Yeah. And we're saving our live fire gear. So there's little tricks like that that you do. Basically, we outfitted a really well-equipped fire station, and that's what we went to. If you're going to teach technical rescue ropes and confined space, you have to have that equipment. We have to have fire trucks. We have to have hoses. They have maintenance schedules. As far as maintenance schedules, we're pretty good on that stuff. We do our own fit testing for every student. We do our own flow testing for SCBAs and masks in-house so we can fix and maintain all of our own stuff and flow test them. And we flow test them every pack two, three times a year because we just keep it on a schedule that we just keep going. We have a computerized program that goes through it. It's called PS Tracks. Shout out to those guys. And it has all of our checklists, our maintenance schedules, our repairs, everything in there. And it's just done all on a tablet. So even our MTO checks, when you go out, all done on a tablet, air logs, all done. It'll shoot an alert. So it says if something needs to be done, it sends an email to whoever's responsible to get it done. A lot of that stuff is just back end, but once it's up and going, you're in a pretty decent spot. Yeah, the evolution has really changed from what we used to do where you had to kind of go in to see those things. But now, like you said, it sends a message to the right person. You designate somebody and they're taking care of the trucks. It goes to them or even to the mechanic. So the mechanic knows right away they got an email that, oh, that truck's down. I've got to put room on my plate to go and get that fixed. So it's it's just getting up and running, but it's, it's going to be really good. It's a good system. Yeah. And it ties in. So for instruction, 
it ties in as well. So if it's an SCBA check for a student, every day the student's going to log in, do their SCBA check. If they're unsure, they forget what did Gord show them three months ago when they were here doing their days one to four, they can click on it to a YouTube link. So the technology is really good. And if we find damage while you're doing your check, you can click on it, take a picture, attach it, and that picture will now go to the mechanic and say, this is what's broken. He means you're saying departments could get away from like paper and binders? Huh, that's the whole thing. Is that what you're pa- telling me? Paper and binders. And I will say this, it's not overly expensive right it's it's no, actually yeah, it's very way affordable better than i thought yeah yeah so, so during those months of getting this off the ground and like reaching 2017 and gorb was saying he was handling a lot of the paperwork and things like what was the experience for you and then you said yeah i'll take on this role like were you having moments where like what the hell <laughs> did we get into and how was it for you what was your role in those months and helping get things off the ground we learned too that we weren't we weren't not teaching all together so we were doing we only were shut down from vocational programs so we were still allowed to do tech rescue and pump ops and stuff like that and i think were we able to do the 115 stuff then or did no. that come out no we no. we weren't allowed to do anything with that yeah so there was still a lot of teaching and stuff and then just facility maintenance i was pretty young at the time i mean i'm still relatively young but i definitely don't have what gord has as far as the computer skills and the standards and stuff he's just a complete whiz so yeah it's kind of a blur the last seven years seven but, years yeah, when been, you say that it's been seven it's years insane, yeah. it's insane it doesn't feel like that long ago like, but then yeah. you try and remember those little details what did you do on a day-to-day but i mean the logistics right the amount of seba and pp and everything is yeah it's there must have been a lot of moments or maybe you still have them where you feel like you can't keep up or is that happening oh every day every day it's you come in you have a plan and here's five things you didn't plan for well you come in you have a plan one thing breaks or one instructor calls in and says i just tested positive for covid Well, now, okay, scramble mode. And when I say scramble, you kind of have a plan for what happens. And that is usually one of us jumps in and does it. But then those six things that you had on your list are now tomorrow's list. And that happens. And it is overwhelming sometimes. And you sit there and this week we have a week where there's nothing happening. And it's like, catch up. (laughs) Time to do this. (laughs) It's not that we're not busy working. It's just like, okay. All right, I'm going to go get a coffee right now, <laughs> and it's okay. And, and and you know, I mean, you've been around and seen it. Sarah in the office, she keeps the wheels on the track. She's always reaching out to you guys as instructors. What's your availability? When are you coming? She's got about 17 balls that she's juggling, including human resources. And then on top of that, she really is the face to the students. Like, she's the one that's in contact with them and talking to them quite regular. And Thank God that she keeps the train on the track for us as far as that stuff goes. And Which is a great benefit that your actual like life partner like is invested in this as well. And, 100%. And supporting it and having to balance work and life. And, you know, Jesse, you can speak to that too. Like how have you balanced almost feeling like you need to be on this 24-7, seven days a week, 365 with an actual life outside and then burnout? Have you guys experienced any of that along the way? I'll touch a little bit on that. So like having Sarah, like she's been with the business since it was in the basement. She knows where the bodies are buried and, and, and <laughs> all and, the back end, yeah, the glue to yeah, the business. Yeah. And, and stuff like that. And you talk about work-life balance and as far as Jesse and Brad go as partners, it's been a challenge the last couple of years. Like Sarah and I work a lot. We keep things on the ball and it's time for us to do a transition and it's probably a good time to talk about Brent Sterling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And we're making a change at the school where there's a lot of big changes. Like I know 
this is the part that's kind of maybe coming up and it's a good time to segue into what can training academies do to be better and things like that and, and where are we? I believe that including Southwest Fire Academy, we have to do better. And we can talk about where we are and just quickly, I just want to touch on, because it comes into this burnout piece sure. that we're speaking yeah. of, is, yeah, I felt overwhelmed the last 18 months and the last year especially and tired and you, you get up to come to work. And don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. I like the work. I like the students. I like instructing. I think when you see me there, I'm usually a pretty happy guy. Always, but like there is the, a physical yeah, mental yeah, cost. And it's happening. So... Brad, Jesse, and myself, we're hiring Brent Sterling to be the principal of the school. So it's growth. And it talks, Jesse, I'm going to let him talk about this, where we almost grew too, well, we did. We grew too fast. Yeah, big time. It was that thing where you want to take on as much as you can. Things are going well. You take them on. But we didn't put the back end and the resources in to not have the burnout factor come. Like it catches up to you. And you're excited doing it, right? It's like, oh, can you guys do a whatever kind of course? Yeah, we could definitely put that together. Oh, you want you, you want, want me to come to the and... one of the world's largest nuclear plants and teach? You bet you I want to go do right. that, you know? And so, they're also, I think, yeah. probably experiencing that we haven't done this before. This is what this is. This is what we have to do. You got to keep up with it. It'd be hard in those moments to pump the brakes and go, whoa, let's just take a second here. For myself personally, and it gets into the, all the mental health aspect and things like that, is I realized in the last six months that... It's going to kill me early if I don't take a step back. And I'm, and again, I don't say it lightly. I don't say it, hey, feel bad for Gord or anything like that. It's, it's just, just a self-awareness piece. It's become aware. This is where these conversations can go a million different directions. But you talk about mental health, self-awareness, family, friends, all of these things. Well, they all start to suffer, including our relationships where we start to suffer a little bit because of what's going on. Tensions and Whatever. lack of sleep. Yeah. yeah. So you have those blow-ups, which have happened, and then you sit down and you go, hey, I still love him. He's still my fire kid, and you move on from it. But the process of moving on, and I think that now we're in a really good spot for Gord personally, but for the business where bringing Sterling on is going to be huge. He has, yeah, such a huge background with the fire service and working with the fire marshal. We're just getting, hopefully, getting approval for a leave of absence so he can come in and really do some consulting and, and managing and whatnot. But he also has a huge background in management and in business and running factories and running a couple hundred employees and whatnot. So he has that background and I think it's going to be extremely beneficial. We've already had tons of meetings and what he can bring to the table is just like all these ideas like, oh, I never even thought of that. Just we're trying to kind of restructure in a lot of ways and go, okay, we need to, one of two things can happen. We can keep doing it the way we're doing it and it's just going to be stressful and that burnout and it's, what do I even want to do this for anymore? The gerbil on the wheel. Right, exactly. I couldn't, why do I even want to be a part of this academy? I could work seven days a month and be on the beach the rest of the time. But at the end of the day, we love it. We love teaching and helping new people come into the service. And you want to show them, you want to guide them into having that good training mentality and whatnot. And I'm still proud of what we're doing. Oh, big like, 100%. You know, like 100%. But it's good to recognize like, okay, we need some help. And we're kind of picking the second option. So how have you managed your time and your stress health-wise? It's been not good. I mean... Give me the arc of like where maybe you were before it started and then how you're balancing physically, mentally, work, family, and teaching. Before I got into the academy, I 
definitely worked a lot if I was teaching first aid and then bartending in the night and then still going to trainings and practice when I was just volunteer firefighter and in those weekend trainings and stuff. So I've always been busy. I think I'm probably a workaholic and take on a lot. But then last year it got to be way too much. So with the full-time fire job, trying to run the business, being on two volunteer departments still, and then the family life and stuff. So it really took a big toll on me. And probably the last 10 years, I'm trying to get this better. It's still not great, but it is better. I would sleep maybe two or three hours a night. Just there was no time. It really hit me hard. I had a big burnout where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Getting so frustrated, irritable with the smallest little thing, checking your pack in the morning and the regulator stuck in the seat and something that takes two seconds to fix. You're, you're so mad. And it's like, what is going on? So actually I reached out to Gord and I was like, hey man, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what's going on. And You're just raw, like the, your, your nervous system is dysregulated. Oh, it was bad, yeah. And it's still not great. Like it's definitely getting better. And, yeah, and you can't stop everything, reset no, yourself yeah. and then go again, right? So it's, it's finding this way to like manage both. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, now how do you have that relationship? I still want to have kids and get married and have that life, but it was just only fire. Like, and I realized that all of the things that I love to do outside of the fire service, the sports and hobbies and camping and all those things just went completely to the wayside and my mom actually pointed out to me she said what do you love doing and I'm like you know she like just answer the question I said well surfing and riding my bike and motorcycle and camping and those things she said when's the last time you did any of those I said oh I don't know and it was years a really difficult thing where you realize that you're not doing any of the things you want to do in life and you're only getting older and for what right and again i'm happy and i'm not complaining either but it's been a huge eye-opener so as fitness and diet and all that of those like meditation have any of those things been anchors to you to sort of keep you stable and going yeah and that's the thing is like i know what i need to do so i mean i I bought a sauna because that helps with my like for personally it helps me huge with mental health and meditation and yoga and exercise and diet but then when you're running non-stop you don't get to eat that healthy food because you're grabbing something quick and you don't get to exercise nearly as much as you want to. And, and sleep's the foundation that pulls oh, the whole rug, t- rug probably out from one of everything. The, probably the most important right. of it all. And Nothing clicks when you don't have that. Oh yeah, and you right. never do it, right? You rarely get to get a proper night of sleep. And that is lack of time to sleep because you're going so late and getting up so early, but is it also because your mind doesn't stop running? Both. It was definitely both. I'm definitely with like meditation and the sauna. It's helped a lot to be able to just even even if there's big problems to be able to do a couple breathing techniques right before you go to bed. And that doesn't really bother me anymore. That's pretty easy. It's more of a time thing. And I remember the first couple of years when we actually got up and running at the school with the boot camps, you'd be doing emails until three in the morning and just on the computer for hours. You'd wake up at six you'd teach all day. And then you're right back on that computer until three in the morning again. And you remember those days, it was uh, yeah. definitely challenging. And there was about two years where we did that, like, really hard. Did you have, I mean, you mentioned your mom asking you those questions, Gordy, did you have that as well? Or were there doctor's assessments or anything? It was like, listen, if you keep, because you mentioned, if you keep going, you're going to die early. So what were the wake up calls? Was it just personally you felt it or were there people letting you know that as well? Personally, I felt it, those foundational pieces with my buddies that I've been in the fire service with and like Ted that I talked about, like going up, making the comments, you're working 32 days in a row. What the hell are you doing? Kind of thing. And then one of the big ones was like my kids, like my daughter. I'm like, holy, I realized it's been two months since I've actually not talked to my daughter. I talked to her almost every day, but, but spent I spent quality like, time. Like went and saw her. Right. And I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. 
and I want to enjoy myself and, and I want to have some fun time for myself. So for me, it was just more, I'm going to say more of a self-revelation as much as I went to my family doctor and said, hey, I'm tired and I'm busy and we went over everything. There wasn't really an assessment, but what I can tell you is when you talk about health and diet, I am not the yoga, fitness, I don't work out every day. And again, that's just not gourd, but changing my diet and eating at home and cooking food, I've probably lost 40 pounds in the last year, just not eating McDonald's breakfast, lunch, and supper. Cause that's what I used to do. I used to drive by drive throughs on my way to work. I grab something, eat it in the car so I could start right away, grab something at lunch, usually going to be a drive through cause I didn't take the time to yeah, do it properly. Right. You don't um, taste it. You don't. You just shovel it in. It's gone. Yeah. And, and it's, it's almost gone. an inconvenience yeah. that you just have to get yeah. done. And then on the way home, which was always eight thirty, nine o'clock at night, because you're working through. And again, I'm not making excuses. I'm not. It's just, it was the reality that we were in driving by. I'm not going to cook something for supper. I'm hitting McDonald's because why? It's easy. I'm tired. I can wolf it down and I can fall asleep on the couch watching Jay Leno. Right. Right. Like yeah. that was, that was, that was what it was. But you, you really didn't have the time either. Like you say, you didn't make the time. You didn't. And that was a big thing. I think that was different from SFA comparatively to a lot of different organizations or businesses where people go into business and they have investors, they have that money initially, where we didn't. So you can have staff. Yeah, we didn't, yeah. we couldn't. So it was us, primarily Gord and Sarah, 100%. Anytime we sold a t-shirt for $20, we were excited. That was such a big thing. It's like, oh, we got some money now. And then the fire truck breaks and it's $6,000. Exactly. And then how do you scrape that? So if it wasn't... How many t-shirts is that? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so how do you put the money into the business to hire the right staff so that you don't have to do all the stuff yourself without that money, without that revenue, right? And all the costs, the government costs. And, and then Gord's pet peeve. So you bank with banks your whole life. And you sit there and say, hey, we have this great idea. We have a business plan. We'd like a loan. They're like, yeah, no, we're not giving you a loan. But if you're successful, when you're all done, bring us your bills and we'll give you a loan on the back end. As you're going through it and the stress is piling up and you go tell an insurance company that you want to take kids that are out of high school and you're going to put them in a building that's on fire or you're going to hang them off of a rope from 60 feet and tell me what your insurance cost is going to be. And, and you have to do it. So, so this is the like, other stress too. It's the yeah. financial oh, end of things, right? Huge. Yeah. It's a real leap of faith, right? It's a financial risk yeah. all for this passion. And it all ends up going into the stress and at what point you bend. And we all have it. Yeah. And I remember when Jesse called me and told me, hey, I'm having a problem. And I'm going to give another quick shout out here to Angela at Ways to Wellbeing, her therapy business. And she deals exclusively with first responders. And I got Jesse in touch with her. My son's a firefighter in Hamilton. When he took the job in Hamilton, I called her up. I introduced the two. My daughter does some high stress work with homeless and people in London. I'm a firm believer in let's get the people set up. And with my kids, and, and I didn't do it with Jesse, obviously, but hindsight with what happened was I've taken the step with my kids to be proactive with it, where they're talking proactively. Yes. 
And I think that that's going to keep them on the right track, hopefully for a very long, healthy career. And now looking back, even as your time as a fire chief, like you didn't know at the time, but there's probably a lot now that you wish you could have done with your firefighters. And now what you hope departments do forward. I'm pretty proud of what I think I did with my firefighters, especially as the chief in BAM. We implemented the county response team. So anytime there were tough calls, usually before the guys were even back from the scene, there was critical incident stress team members there. And it went to to one point where I had a firefighter that was going through a really tough time. And I actually took him in my car and drove him to the center to get the help. And I moved him into my house to look after him. So I'm, I think I've always kind of... It's always been there. It's been there that it's important. But for me, it was always, it's important for other people. And I didn't take the time to see what was happening for me because I was always busy. And again, that came back from that culture of mission, people, kind of you, right? So I was always, I was all, and I think Jesse can say, I've always been cognizant of the other people. Oh, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like you've come to a realization that it's actually mission, people, me, all on the same line? And is that possible? Is that what the balance is? This is kind of a tough conversation, right? And it's a real tough one because- That's why I asked the question. yeah, Yeah, it's what you're saying makes sense to me as a person that is in any other job than emergency services. I really believe that. And- I believe you have to balance those things because if you as the first responder aren't healthy, you can't do the first one, okay? So if if we aren't healthy, we can't do the mission. If a supervisor isn't healthy, they can't take care of the people that are their subordinates. So are they on the same line? Maybe, but we still have to do the mission first. And that goes into the whole firehouse culture today versus 30 years ago. Guys 30 years ago, I'll say from 30 years before that, the old timers and stuff like that. I think that I am still a firm believer in if we take this job, we have to put the people in the public first. And by that, that means, and, and part of that is our own health, 100%, making sure that we're mentally taken care of, making sure that you're physically in shape to be able to perform the jobs and the tasks and making sure that you train enough that when that call comes in, that you know what piece of equipment, how to operate it, how to do it safely, all of these things. That goes into building the mission and keeping us there. I think that there's a cop-out, and I hate to say it, but it's a tough conversation. Some people use the others as an excuse not to train, not to practice. It sounds terrible, and I don't like, and I don't want to tar everybody But this is what we talked about. We said the tough yeah. and the love, both yeah. are important. So sometimes right. it's tough, and sometimes it's love. Sometimes right. it's both. So it's fine to say that. Yeah. So, and that's my opinion, is what I see as a training officer, as a deputy chief, as a fire chief over my career. Like I'll say the the young fellow that I took into my house and took him to his appointments for a while and stuff like that, he's alive today and working, I think, because I took the time to do that. And then again, this isn't a, hey, hero. No, but it's a thing. fact. It's a, yeah. It's, and that's where I say to you that as the supervisor person in me, I'm like, no, that is my job to make sure that that person is taken care of. Is it the conundrum almost like you could use the analogy of a house fire, right? Suppression, like water application, ventilation, search, they all need to happen right now at the same time. So you take these actions of opportunity of like, well, which do you prioritize in that moment? So is it almost like a moment to moment, day to day thing where today I need to prioritize myself because I'm always prioritizing the mission, because I'm always prioritizing the people. So that's why I think I mentioned they're all on the same line 
just like a ventilation suppression and yeah. surge. And I don't disagree with that because without those, you can't do the one. Yeah, it's and a paradox. It, it, it's, it's, and, and it is this, yeah. do I always put the mission first and I'm suffering? Well, at some point, the balance is going to flip that the mission no longer can be accomplished. It suffers. And the mission suffers because yes. of the way I am. And Jesse and myself and Brad and Sarah, we've all had these talks that over the last six months to a year, because I've had an epiphany that the mission is failing or not going as good a plan because I'm failing. Right. You have to be self-aware and you have to be able to say that. Okay. So we could always prioritize mission if we're aware that each person individually isn't responsible for the entire mission. The three of us, if we're a crew, like mission's always first. But if I'm in a place where I need to prioritize myself for a time so that I'm then back in the game again, that always keeps mission first. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And we can say this and in a podcast and in a studio, this is really easy to say, yeah, that let's do that. Let's apply it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the application is horrendous. Take it not just from Southwest Fire Academy, but you take that to a firehouse, manpower, overtime, costs. COVID. Do, Jesus, I never even, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Like, I mean, didn't that just kick everybody right in the Teeth, ass, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and- but you add all these other pressures onto that. And it's no wonder, like, again, two and a half years of COVID, how do you expect them to be acting now and coming back and to do this stuff? Because not only did we have all of those things we're talking about, now we've got family that are sick. And a lot of fam- we've had people that have passed, friends that have passed. And now financial are, pressures yeah. on top of that. All of that. I kind of yeah. uh, tie it into, you go to university or college or whatever, and each professor is treating their class, like that's the only class you're taking. And they're all treating it at that level. You got four months, you're taking my class for four months. You need, we're the priority, but do eight of those at once, right? It's really, really hard to do. And it's often in the fire service, you'll see admins or chiefs and people move up. They have, well, this project needs to happen. So each project, when you read it on paper and you speak about it, it looks great. But how do you manage that and have it function properly in amongst the 20 other things that are already running? Let's take that back to Southwest Fire Academy and back again a couple of topics ago where we talk about, hey, what can we do better? What do we need to do better? And and we know we want to do better. One is we've recognized our burnout, our staffing, our things like that. We're bringing a principal in place. We're going to let some policies. We're working that side of it. Mm. The other piece to do better where you talk about projects and where does it fit on a list and you're part of this committee is we're pretty proud that we're actually starting a committee of firefighters in this province that are good firefighters that are going to be looking at developing programs for firefighters outside of the academy, outside of the pre-service type thing, so that we have the best people coming out and teaching great things and Mm. instilling knowledge and Mm. training. Like that's always been my kind of vision is I want people to come away learning something Mm. and being able to take it. So if you spent a week with me and you were like, okay, I just practiced stuff I've never done that I could have done in my firehouse, then that's a failure on me. But if you come away with an idea or something like that, that you can take back and discuss and change minds, policies, procedures, that's a great day. And when you start talking about the guys that we're trying to bring into this committee, yourself, Broussard, I mean, I know I'm going to miss some. Darren, Darren yeah. Kinnies, uh, Miller, Kid, yeah, Tazarski is mm-hmm. coming up to do a trench course. Burke, Darren, Jordan Willis out of Waterloo. These are all guys that are going to be able to come in and that love the number one, love the job, and they aren't there for a paycheck. Some of the things that we're doing, you talk about doing better, we're building, and you've seen the props yeah, that, 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 that are yeah, the, getting yeah, well, built amazing. at the school. 
that's Cadiz, Broussard, and Darren and Riley's. Yeah, that's their, the, the four of those guys. That's kind of their project. And they just come up to me and they're like, hey, can we do that? I'm like, dude, it's your toy. You do what you want. And it's going to be amazing oh, when yeah. it's done. And they love it. They come up and they're like kids in a candy store. And they're working hard, man. This is trusting your people and giving them a little bit of leash. And like and A little bit. We're giving them a ton. Of them. I'm just all like, they, they'll unleash. come, hey. Unleash yeah. them. And, and, and then yeah. you're kind of back to the analogy of, of house fires. It's like you've got all these resources on scene, but we're not utilizing them. We're sending one crew in to do all those things. So why are we not taking all these guys that have so much experience, so much knowledge, so much to bring to the table? And they want to pour it in. They want to impassion. The passion is probably the biggest thing out of all of them. Exactly. So instead of Gord sitting down and writing every single lesson plan, why don't we do it as a committee? And there's going to be the guys that specialize in certain things. And it's just going to, I think, make everything so much easier. Here's what I love about it. I love the fact that you mentioned just teaching somebody something. But when I hear that, what I know and I feel is coming from you is like, we don't just want to teach somebody something. We want to teach them the right thing. And then all these people at the table, it's not about teaching their thing or what they think the right thing is. Like these are legitimately people that do not care what the end result thing is, but we all just professionally want to decide what is the best that we know of right now. And if it's something counter to what I've been taught for years, I don't care. I'll abandon it because I trust in that person and these five other people. And we all have an agreement that that is particular. That's the best thing. It's not just this other, we can throw a lot of tools in the toolbox, but they don't necessarily all belong there. So what are the right things to teach? So, And the continuity, right? And the of continuity, yeah. But consistency. One of the, one yeah. of the big, big things that I love about when you guys are up at the academy and you're teaching the recruits and things is... Jesse will talk about his experiences. I'll talk about my experiences. You talk about your experiences. Darren, like Brass, you've had Broussard on here. I mean, the man knows everybody. And I mean- Legend, legend. <laughs> yeah, legend, yeah. legend status. And when legend status starts to address the students, I sit in the back of the room, shut up, and I'm a student. <laughs> you yeah. learn right? so much. You know? and, yeah. and I do that with you. You've seen me. I've sat in the back of the class and listened to what your presentation is. And I think and we all have is. this equal yeah. level of respect for each other, yeah. and we all know when yeah. to sit and listen. I and, think that's and, the key. And when to jump in. Yes. So if I'm talking, yes. it isn't a bad thing if Scott jumps in and says something or Jesse jumps in and says something. It's not, I've seen so many instructors in the past that take this pride thing and it's like, oh, they're sabotaging my lesson. No, they're making it better. We're engaging. We're having conversations. And I go back to my years at the fire college. The best learning happened before they took the booze away from the dorms and you sat in the hallway and played mini golf and drank a beer. We're here in Collingwood today in the studio, and I'll never forget the fella that used to come up from Collingwood. And as you went through officer courses together, you kind of went through with the same guys back in the day, right, as, as you did training. And we loved it when he was on a course in the summer because he was a slush puppy delivery sales guy. So he brought the big slush puppy machine, put it in his dorm room, filled one with rum, one with <laughs> vodka, and we were there for the... But that was the best learning. Oh, yeah. You you learn the best that way. But even back to what we were saying where you jump in and stuff and it gives students different perspective. And a lot of times what I've found teaching, and I'm guilty of it when I first started, it was like, okay, this is how you're supposed to do it. And there's no other way. And there's so many other ways. There's so many ways of doing all the things. And so the instructor's going and the student asks a question and says, no, you wouldn't do it that way. And then you can kind of jump in and not make the other instructor look bad. It's always in support say, of. Well, what, there, I had a call where actually I had to do it that way or, or whatever the case is, right? So it is nice to invoke that critical thinking amongst each other and other instructors and students. And Well, that's the key though, that the students, when they see 
professionals in the job have professional dialogues and mutual respect and they're able to go, huh, I hadn't thought about that. You're modeling how they're going to be oh, as firefighters, sure. right? And they it, see that that's okay. And it doesn't have to come from the instructors. Like I learned so much from students, whether, you know, they read something in the textbook and, or they had an idea or even just asking a question, they go, oh, that's a great question. And you think about it or they have a solution to something. It's like, that's fantastic. Yeah, of course that would work. Maybe it wouldn't be our first tactical decision, but if this happened, then absolutely that's that's how we would go about that. I think about it as now when you're dialoguing with a doctor, like none of us have been to medical school, but we have access to all the information they have access to. So if you're your own advocate, right, and you know where to look and you spend enough time and do enough research, you can have now a different dialogue, a level of dialogue with your doctor that 30, 40, 50 years ago you couldn't have because they held all the cards. And then doctors need to be okay with it's not a threat to their authority or their knowledge. It's, like, it's just a different level of respect for the student, like the person they're caring for. So I think that ties in with us too. Like they have access to all this information and we know that they're being overwhelmed with a lot of stuff that's good and not good. But at least now we can respect them, what they're bringing and, what, and know where they got it all and then have a conversation with them about it. And one of the important pieces with any instructors, and I, I say this to all of them, is anybody that says this is the only way, you have to do it this way. This is the way then you should probably get up and leave the room because there are 800 different ways to do things. Cadiz the other day had a great saying, and and it was just the first time I've heard him say it to a class. I was kind of in the back watching, and it was, take what you're given. Don't try to make it fit a textbook. The scenario, don't fit the scenario to a textbook. Take what you're given, use your tools, deal with it. Take what you're given. I'm like, that's such a perfect analogy is because it's, the textbook will never give you all those givens. Right. And you still want to make the best decision based on what you have. And that's what I find with training. It can be so detrimental is we learn something, then we roll up on a scene. It's like, oh, it has to be done in this order, step by step, the way I was taught. It's like, no, you need to know all of those skills. And sometimes you need to apply them all, but sometimes we can skip some of those, right? Just like prioritizing, like you're talking about with ventilation search and suppression. And yeah, they all have to be done, but in what order? It's going to be situation to what you have, right? And if that person is right in there, you know, Danny would go right from, and he can use that as example. It's like he made the right decision before they had water on that fire because he could see the patient go in and grab them. Like you, you have to be flexible and be able to adapt to what you're, you're presented with. And that's so important. And we get that muscle memory and training and it could be a really good thing because we want that muscle memory, but it also can be really bad because then we don't eliminate the steps that are just taking time and that don't necessarily need to be done or, or vice versa. Yeah, we had a discussion last night with the crew, a couple of us, and what came out was that idea of when you're becoming an acting captain or a captain, you're an IC, like you want to get all these sectors sectored. I want to get fire sector, rescue sector, ventilate. And if I'm doing all those check boxes and I have I, all my stuff. I need sec- a check box. Yeah. <laughs> right. So as that truck goes, they have to be this. And the next, and then, okay, whew, now we're good. But the truth is like maybe in the situation, the best thing you can do is marry up those first two crews and their fire attack. Like you don't even have a rescue sector yet, or you show up and you've got a VEZ, the priorities rescue. So those two crews work together to get the rescue done. Like a few of us were like, oh, you had that epiphany of like, oh, like I had never thought about it that way. I was just thinking we need the ICs expecting me you on know, the DC on the way is expecting to hear all these sectors being made. But if you only have three guys on the line, it's not going to get where it needs to go and everything's going to get worse. So if you put six people on the line, guess what? This all gets done in an hour. It gets better way, way faster. Way faster, right. So it's, it's, the, it's, it's exactly what you're speaking about, it, Jesse. It, it's the old school 
rural firefighting, it's better to have low flow and not put the water on the fire and keep my water in my porta tank because we look silly if we run out of water with a porta tank. No, put the fire out, problem goes away. Put all the water yeah, in the right. truck on yeah. the fire and then see what you have. And, and, <laughs> and then we'll go from there. Right, Resources right. will come. So let's let's jump off of that then. So tying right back always to like the core passion, the mission, why you're even doing this to begin with, why you even started it. In your notes to me, you may have touched on it briefly already, is that what academies can do better and how maybe the way things are structured currently is that we're not actually able to or overall teaching people how to be firefighters, where it's more about meeting these JPRs and these standards. So how do you in this world now and how do you see things getting, I know it's a big question. And then something to add too, like were there calls? I know you mentioned the ice water tragedy for sure, but other other calls in your career where you've realized what a firefighter needs to be and now you see these limitations on you and how do we get from A to B with all the stuff in the way? That's a huge question. So for me, number one, what every person needs to realize, if you take a pre-service program, you're not training a firefighter. We are exposing someone to what the role of a firefighter in a community is. We're exposing them to tools. We're exposing them to hoses. We're exposing them to the inside of a fire environment. Mentality. Yeah. We are not training them to be firefighters. And I think that's the biggest misnomer. And I think that the Ontario Association of Fire Chiefs, I think that the Office of the Fire Marshal, that they have the wrong idea. And again, I'm not saying this to be critical, but I think the idea of we have these programs, we have them come to us, they're already certified. All a certification means is on this day, you passed a written test and you demonstrated that you could do this skill to a minimum standard. Right. So what I want you to speak to is when you're saying we're not teaching them how to be firefighters, what are we teaching them for their next step? And why is that system that's in place limiting you from actually, because I know you want to teach them to be firefighters, but you're not. So what's handcuffing you? So what's handcuffing us is we have an arbitrary checklist that says the students have to do this in this order in this way. And it was written by whoever, wherever, whenever, and we're given that by the government of Ontario. So for a student that is paying us a lot of money to come to a school to get the minimum qualification, they're coming to get their gold seal so that they have what they need to apply to Toronto, Brampton, you name it, to a career fire department in Canada. If I didn't train them to pass the checklist, I'm doing them a disservice because they're paying me so that they can get this credential to put on the resume right? That's my job at the pre-service level. What I'm not teaching them is it took years for me to be a good firefighter. We're never going to do that in a college or a pre-service program. We're never going to do that. There's That's the mentoring. That's when that person gets in, that's a, an apprenticeship and you have to put them in. What what aren't we teaching them? What we can do, what, we can, what I try and instill, and I think all of us, and that's why it's so important to have those passionate instructors who are so into the job, who love the job, who love getting off shift and going and teaching is that passion, right? They're very influenced. And when they see that passion, they become more passionate. So we try and really instill that culture and that mentality and the importance of training. And once you get into a firehouse, if you get on a crew that is sitting around watching TV all day, you need to do something about that and you can do a ton as the new guy. And a lot of people think that they can't, right? Well, I'm brand new. I can't, I don't have any, I, I can't 
go in and just start running the show and you can't but you can bring that positivity and that spark back into the crew and say hey can you go over this with me and you can get them off those lazy boy chairs or, or whatever or find people you align with outside of that group absolutely right and take training on your own like go and do a, a weekend course and if your department isn't going to pay for it do it anyway two things i've always appreciated like this is if i came in and wanted to instruct and you're like you can only teach these checkbox things and you can't say anything else I don't think I would be happy. I think I've loved the fact that you're like, these are your students and you're not micromanaging. You're not on me saying, don't ever veer from these JPRs because you know we're going to honor them and we're going to make sure that they have what they need because we're honoring them as people and their serve. And this is what they need to do for their arc of their career. This is the start. But you also allow us the room to, without overwhelming them and taking away from their focus, is giving them a little bit of extra. Here's where you're going next. Here's where you're going to be. But that's your experience. And that's us hopefully providing good instructors with experience that are competent and at the legend status. And we've worked hard to try to say, hey, Scott, we want you, but you want to come because you could go anywhere, right? Brass can go anywhere. Chris Burke can go anywhere. Darren can go anywhere. And again, they're all good guys. Like it's just an example, but we want you to want to come to us because we recognize that that experience piece is critically important. Yeah. But we want to come to you guys because we want to be a part of what you're doing because we know we share the same end goal. Right. And I think a big part of it too, I think my buddy, Brian Miller, he teaches with us yeah, and he's, he's a rock guy. star. Yeah, and for sure. I heard him saying it to a class one time and it was so good because we were pretty strict with, if you don't pass the test, you do get kicked out. If you can't perform the skills, you do get kicked right. out. This is, so that's many a key places. point too. You guys aren't just pushing right. people through so with their certificates. And that's what he says is yes. we're not a diploma mill and that's why I like yes. teaching at Southwest Fire. Yeah. Academy because if you're not good enough, you don't pass. And it doesn't mean there's not opportunity to come back and try again and whatnot, of course. And most of the time it's, it's because students aren't taking it as seriously or or whatever the case is. Right. But that's key. key. I think it's so important for us and our instructors really do appreciate that because we're still full-time firefighters and someone's going to come and get into the back of the truck and sit next to us. Right. And we have skin do, in the game. Right. Do I want someone who couldn't raise a roof ladder to come and sit in the back of the truck with right. me? Probably not. Just because so, it was their dream. Right. So from a yeah. business perspective, I don't want to just pass people through and then you get more business and you make some more money. It's, we're still in this job and for the people, they need to be able to protect the people. And one of the things, and we talk about that in the people, and I want to go back to the culture just for a second is... I think we are the only school left in, for sure, Ontario, maybe Canada, that the students clean the toilets every day, that they wash the floors, they cook their own meals, they sit together as a firehouse and as a core group and sit there and they cook their meals. They sleep together as a group in a dorm. We get them up in the middle of the night and they do drills at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, just like you're getting up. Pride and ownership. I'm the president of the company I have been since the day it started. And I'll still clean toilets. Yesterday, I'm doing equipment checks and packs because it needed to get done and I was there. Not one person in the fire service is too good for any job. Whether it's the fire chief, if you're a rookie and the fire chief is washing a fire truck, you better go take the brush out of his hand or her hand. Like you better do that. But I'm proud about that we still do that. And some students won't come to us because they're like, I'm not cleaning toilets. To me, that's perfect. We don't want them coming to us. And I think again, with the influence... I tell students, like you might get students arguing, okay, who's cleaning toilets today? And I always tell them, like, if I'm at the firehouse and I'm cleaning toilets, I'm mopping the floor, I'm so happy because I get to be in a firehouse. So you got to take all of those jobs 
and just love them. Like, don't worry about cleaning the toilet. Like that's, you're in a firehouse That's the coolest thing in the world. Right. So when you say these things and I think it kind of sheds a little bit of light as, oh yeah, that's, that's a pretty good trade off. So it's great how, even though you are handcuffed in the way that you need to support the students to get them to be able to pass their tests, to move on to the next step. It's great that you've recognized and implemented these other things all around that, that they benefit from maybe even more so. I think it is super important. And again, having the instructors come in, and I guess I shouldn't say we just teach them to check a checkbox because... because yeah, we do more. We do sets and reps. Yeah. And I guess I'm speaking more to the limitations of the, you're given these checklists that you have to put them through. I'm not saying that, that you guys are only doing that. I'm saying that I, I want to get to that larger conversation about what is the limitations around you that's forcing it. Why am I spending three or four hours with a student on how to do a pre-plan of our school? Let's talk about what a pre-plan is. And guess what? When you're on the job, you're going to go out with your crews. You're going to do pre-plans. You can learn that stuff. On and the no job. one's going to die yeah. if you... And nobody's going to die. If you need to do it, it clunk yeah. in a clunky way that now day. I'm, I'm spending four hours. I have to put you through a simulated smoke alarm program class for a community center or something like that, right? To give you a checkbox, to give you a checkbox. So when we do those things, what are we taking time away from? Well, we're taking time away from just advancing a hose around corners, flowing water. Sets and reps. Sets and reps. That's and, what's and, being stolen. And, and, that's, and that's what it is. I would much rather have a pre-service program that teaches you the equipment, basic operation of the equipment, the hoses, but I would much rather coming out of boot camp, you can pull a line off the rig, advance it upstairs, downstairs, flowing water into it aggressively. Do those things, like get those things down, do searches, do fast, effective, real life searches, not the little ants in a room or what does brass call it? The elephant parade or something, right? The little elephant parade. Centipede parade or something. Yeah. So all of these checkbox things that are in there that truly, truly, truly you as a guy getting a probie on the back of your rig, do you give a shit that they've done a pre-plan at Southwest Fire Academy? But would you like it where they can throw a ladder? Yeah. And that's what we're getting away from. We do add things too on top. Like we're very limited with time, but we add a lot of survival and a little bit of writ and flashover. And a lot of those things aren't in the curriculum. We expose them. We expose them because we feel it's that important. Do we expose them as much as we'd like to? Absolutely not. We'd like to do a full month of just those things. Yeah. I've loved that as an instructor. Like here's five minutes to open your mind to where you should be going. Yeah. Having that knowledge of, oh, wow, there's a lot more out there. Right. It's one of those things I always say is like, the more I learn about this job, the less I feel like I know yeah. and I feel worse and like, oh, I don't know anything about this job. Watching our instructors come in that have different experiences than me, like forceful entry, advancing hoses, fire suppression, all these things. I'm 50 years old and I'm still learning from you guys every day, right? And I love it. And that's why sometimes I just go out and I sit and I take some pictures and I listen. <laughs> I, feel, right? I feel like I feel like yeah. if the students didn't show up, all of yeah. us would still run a class. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> just for each other, just right? Just for fun. Oh, for sure. yeah. 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 I think we are transitioning into a lot of changes, but one of the big things that we want to do is get more sets and reps. So the building that Brass and his guys are making right now, it's going to be huge for that. That's going to help a lot. But we're also looking at transitioning the way that we do our theory so that we can get that information out to the students prior to. So A, they come in having a better knowledge of all the subjects that we're going to go to. It'll help with consistency and continuity of the same information. And then, of course, they can still ask questions in person when they're doing those days. 
But now we've taken that two hours of theory, it's finished, we're good to go, and it's just sets and reps. So they're still doing it, but they're getting to do it more times. So that's how we're trying to kind of, I mean, I don't know when it's going to be completely implemented. It's always going to be evolving and changing, but we do feel we want to give them more time with the tools feel, and hands-on. I feel we're on the right track. Oh, with big that. time, big Like it's time. definitely we're on the right track. Because the bureaucracy is not going to change no, fast no. enough. If anything, the, it'll get worse. The hiring system is not going to change fast enough. So yeah. you, I think you guys are finding creative ways to help people learn to be firefighters while still satisfying the bureaucracy. Is that fair to say? And we've added days, like we could cut, days out of weekends and stuff like that if you look at some other similar programs but we're not in fact we're trying to find more time for sets and reps for the students to be the better firefighter when they're hired the hiring process leaves so much to be desired as well like when you just go through it again it, it because i've had recruits come in and they went through a program but they touched the ladder once and they did their one time and then they're done so literally, like you said, it's been exposure. Yeah, so you guys giving them more time as much as you can to fit everything into that limited amount of time you have is admirable. When you're doing a search evolution and you've got three people left over, let's call them writ and have them throw a ladder on the building. That's just a rep for a ladder. It's not tying into the search class that we're doing right now, as Gord did air quotations. There. Um, <laughs> well, it's almost yeah. into that mentality of look for work. Right. Yes. When you show up in the fire scene, just because these other sectors are doing things, you don't need to be standing there. Oh, for, and that's so, what we're trying to eliminate. So instead of, well, if we only have three ladders, then only three people can be climbing a ladder. So what can the rest of them do? And there is something to be said about students watching, like especially with something like forcible entry, where it's a technical skill. You're paying attention and you're seeing how they're manipulating the tool. And that's important too, but we do want to have more and we're getting there. The scenarios and, okay, these guys are doing that, so you do that. And it just really instills that confidence. And every time I do it still training, like you keep learning about yourself, how you react and how to go about those things. So it's so important for our students, the more time they get doing all those things, then they're going to go into a fire station and they're going to be more confident. And once the student has graduated and have their certificates and their things like that, and they get into that hiring process, I think that they're still a misnomer there that if they can get through a hiring process that they're a firefighter. The hiring process itself, you just have to learn like it's another class, right? You have to learn how to get good at writing the tests. Then you have to learn how to do the interviews. Then you have to learn how to do whatever practical assessment that they're going to do. And people take courses on how to do those things. They're trying to crack the code, those. right? And in and, and my Gord's opinion as a deputy fire chief that hired career people is a fundamental flaw in the system. We're just creating a checkbox to say to human resources, this person has A, B, C, D, E, and F, so they're good to move on to an interview. And if you're the best person in an interview, then you're going to get scored the best. And we aren't looking at back in the day. It used to be if you were a tradesperson, it was a huge asset as a firefighter. It, it, that told so much about you. Now, I had a conversation once with a chief training officer that said they won't hire a firefighter on their job unless they have a university degree. Okay, why? Well, because it's a $100,000 a year job now and they should have a university degree to do it. That has, in, in Gord's opinion, again, a lot of people are going to disagree with me, has nothing to do with being a good firefighter. I know plumbers that can't hardly spell their name that would make awesome firefighters. Right. But I think, too, that university degree can be important 
but then they look for in every single applicant that they get. So the chiefs could use an argument that, well, we're doing it for succession planning. We're going to need fire chiefs. We're going to need business administrators. Ah, they can take that through right. the Right. And, and I don't disagree, but I think you need a good mix of people. Gord's a high school graduate. That's it. That's all. And, no, I've been hey, a fire, and I'm just saying me it's as well. passion that me took me as to well. where I was going. Sure. But what I mean is what I believe these chiefs are doing and what is wrong is they're hiring for everyone to be a fire chief. Well, how many fire chiefs are there? There's one. Like, who's going to be the fire chief tomorrow? Well, who's going to be the firefighter today? We need those firefighters today and tomorrow. Amen. And that's what I mean. So, because I don't want to just say, well, if you went to university, that doesn't have validity. But you're, again, the passion. It's prioritizing and, one over the other. Right. right. And again, I'm not knocking no, the people that have. What I'm saying is by that fire department saying, we are only taking people with that checkbox, then they are missing out on 85 to 100 awesome candidates that would be in that pool otherwise. Most firefighters, I mean, myself, I'm horrible at taking tests. I'm horrible at the academic side. And yeah, you, you need that the passion. And But you can learn to get better at it to, for the level of the job you're doing. I listened to an information night very recently, and the chief spoke to this when it's pertinent. And he spoke to the idea that and it's one of my sore spots. Like, well, we do everything as a team. Right. So he said, so it's okay if someone's more of like the brawn, right? And then someone's more of an academic. So if you're sitting listening to this information night and you're thinking you're not physically capable and and you don't have that aspect of you as a person in this moment and you're more of an academic thinker, then please apply because we do everything as a team. What I've tried to pass on to the people that I have the pleasure to mentor and instruct too is that we do, but if we do every single skill together, it takes way too much time. Like we're a team, but we're doing skills as individuals, all working towards the same goal. Especially so in smaller departments. Two of us can't throw a ladder and then two of us go to force a door and then two or three of us have to go and pull the line. Like you can't do that or we just don't have, we don't have the time for it. So this idea that, then what are you saying? Are you saying that in any given situation that that person that's only the academic is going to find themselves in a situation where they're suited for that. <laughs> right. Like so, they're never going to be the one that has so, to have a tool in their hand. Like, so what we're accepting, it's faulty logic. What we're yeah. accepting is mediocrity. Right. It's, it's and ludicrous. again, I have a, a huge pet peeve and I'll probably piss a lot of people off, but I recently trained a department and I was asked to go lighter on them than what I normally do because they didn't want people to leave because it's more important to have a body and a pulse than it is to have a competent person. Right. And it was like, okay, you're paying me. I mean, I, it, it went against my soul. Like I was hired to do a job. So I, I did and the it's job the way the that they wanted. Mentality. Right. So my, my thought on when you said that is it's, you know, what's really important is that the people that we go to have a body and a pulse. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I would <laughs> yeah. take five competent firefighters over 20 incompetent firefighters any day of the week. Yes. Like, and I think this is, I haven't had it, but you've had the rural volunteer experience where you know you can be very effective with a few people. Oh, as long as they're good. Be. You, yeah, as long as they're good. And you have to be. My career department is also very small and you have to be efficient and there is no second truck coming or not for a long time. My career department was, was a small, small, small yeah. department. And then a lot of times it was just us. And that you guys didn't even have four on a truck. So you're rocking with two trying to get everything done. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying that's the right way to do no. things, but yeah, we, <laughs> of course, back but... in the day, we would pull up at a house fire with two. Two out and then two in. No, two. 
No, two. I mean you have two yeah. out, and then those two are in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's two. So one, one, one one's in, in command. <laughs> pump operator sets right. up their line, and then we push in with two. Nobody behind us. What would you then recommend to somebody that's listening to this, that's thinking about getting into the career? So, I often think about you can never depend on your department to give you all the training you're ever going to need because especially the larger the department the less logistically possible it is to do so you have to lean on yourself and even just like as a, as a person and having a doctor you need to be on your, your own advocate a lot of the time so what do you recommend people do as a path to actually become a good firefighter and a mentality of getting something from you getting something from courses getting something from their department how would you recommend that they prepare themselves for me number one still the best career on the planet, hands down, all the things that we're talking about that may seem negative, it's because we want to make it better, right? Like that's where you're at with finding the solutions to make it better. A new person coming in, always, always, always want to learn. And as corny as it sounds, be the firefighter you want rescuing your wife and kids. When the chips are on the table, if you're not the guy that or the girl that you want coming, then fix that. Find out what it is and fix it. Now, how do you surround yourself? How do you set yourself up for success? Like-minded people. You can go to any firehouse anywhere on, in the planet and you will find a negative Nelly and you'll find somebody that's driven and passionate and wants to do the job. Seek out the passionate people. Have coffees with them. Get on a text group with them. Talk to them. Hey, I read this article in X magazine or I saw whatever on Instagram and start the conversation. That's job one. Get the conversation. Number two, you're right. Logistically, you're never going to learn everything in a firehouse, but find those senior firefighters and start learning from them. Ask them questions, get good sets and reps. You know how many drills you can do by yourself out on the firehouse floor? Tons. You can do basic survival training, mask up, hold, drills. Mask up drills. Hold. You can do a ton of stuff. Be your own advocate. Well, like I think you, you can learn everything you need yeah. to know in your firehouse, but I'm just saying departments, if you're expecting your department to set up training for you annually, it's not gonna you, happen. it's it'll never, never happen. happen. No. Right. no. And then the other thing is go to FDIC every couple of years, get down, go to Baltimore Firehouse Conference every couple of years. FDTN. Guess, guess what? I mean, we could listen like millions of different things and they're in Canada, they're in the US, they're all over the place. Go out and expand your horizon. Even if it, you're making $100,000 a year, you can invest $2,000 a year in your own professionalism. It doesn't have to be handed to the to people you. that haven't been hired on, right? What can they do? And I agree with you, get to those conferences, go take extra courses, all that's so important. But obviously time and money and family and all those things can be big factors. And, and nowadays in 2022, how much can we learn on social media and listening to these podcasts? Like there's so many good podcasts and so many good Instagram and Facebook pages and YouTube videos where you can still continuously learning. And of course, it's not as good as having that tool in your hand, but you're staying immersed in it as much as possible or volunteering, right? We get the students that we can tell who are really passionate come to the school just to volunteer. And I did that at the beginning with you, right? Like, because I just got to stand next to Gord and watch him, whatever he was doing. And I, you get to learn that whole time. So if you immerse yourself as much as possible, you're just going to continuously learn. And what I'm thinking of is that person that's trying to get on, they don't know anything about the service and it's no fault of their own, but there are academies that will then they're being told you're ready. And then they get hired and they pass the fitness test and they pass the interview and they're like, their department's telling them they're ready. 
right? But there's a lot of people that, and they think they are, but again, no fault of their own from their ego or anything like that. But these people that they see that are the, the judge, I guess I would say with lack of a better term, is saying that they're ready when they're actually not, right? They're at risk. So I guess what I'm trying to drive at, just talking this through with you guys, is how would they know who to go to? They say they could get the job in a year. Maybe that's not best for them. It's actually a risk to them. It's a risk to their crew. It's a risk to the people out there. They need three years to get ready based on who they are. They could skate through the system in a year, but they should actually take three. Is that a better approach? And then how do people know where they're at and how long they should take to know before they can believe, regardless of what a department's telling them, that they are actually ready to do the job? I think you need that self-awareness to start with, right? People think, oh, I got the SEALs. I'm a firefighter. And I have, you hear that all the time with students. It's they're not a firefighter. They're a certified firefighter, if you will. Right. But you, yeah, you're being told by those, by yeah, these formal bodies that you are that ready. You are. So you think, well, I must but be. How is that even a thing? It's a certificate. I'm a certified firefighter, according to IFSAC and Pro Board, but I've never been on a truck and a call. So how does that correlate? Exactly. And we're going back to checklists and things like that. So is this totally the wrong approach to say you're a certified firefighter? No, you're, and I don't know what you call it. What do you call it? You've you, done you, your you're, pre-service. You've been exposed to firefighting and have a minimum understanding. Right. right. Are they on the job and they're not ready or it's going to take them more time? We've all said this and Jesse just said it, self-awareness. And then I think one of the biggest pieces, find like-minded people and seek out opportunities. So, yeah, I'm not saying that every person we should expect that every person coming on and hitting the truck is now fully functional. Like they can do, they they can do 20 years of fire experience the very first day. Like we're still learning. Oh, like 100%. We, we get it. But I'm I'm trying to find that like because we've all seen students come into academies and leave academies come onto trucks and you're like, you're not ready to be here right now. And you may be, if you do A, B, and C, but you're not ready right now. Yeah. I've seen students come to fire academy, get a certificate, get hired on their first go. And I sit there and I look and I wonder, and and all honestly, I'm like, wow, how did that happen? That's what I'm speaking to. Like that shouldn't happen, right? It shouldn't, but that's your process. That's your hiring process. That's the HR. That's, That's human resources. So outside of Southwest Fire Academy, there is an entire industry in this province teaching people how to work the system. There is. And and it's interview out there. prep and and all of that stuff and so now I'm going to an interview prep and they're telling me these are how you answer these questions and they're making up fictional stories whereas when I did my interviews I talked about things that I actually did and maybe I didn't hit every checkbox but I was the better person yeah so we're not going to avoid those people so but I'm saying there are good people that really want to do this for the right reasons and I'm, what I'm looking to offer them in this moment when they're thinking of getting into the service is about how do they they can't depend on these other formal bodies to let them know that they're ready so how do they then get themselves ready well, how they get themselves ready, I guess, is by continuously training and whatnot. But from the broken down system, just going back to that and how, how you can weed those people out, I think is, and I've seen it done in a few departments in the hiring process where they do skills and you go in and you have to climb the ladder truck or they get you to do some search and rescue. All of those different kinds of skills and that I think would really help pull the proper people into those positions. Right, because we've shifted more into the, well, we just want to hire good people. Right. Yeah. And we can, and te- and we can teach them the job. And we can teach them the job. And we can yeah. teach the job. And you but are we always... teaching them the job? As you guys were just talking, I'm kind of thinking to myself. So back to Scott's question. So that person that they want to get hired, they want to do it for the right reason. What can they do? Well, I'm going to say seek out training from places like what we're doing. And I don't always like to pump up our tires and I probably do a pretty poor job of it, but like Broussard for 
a bunch of the courses, how we're building the props out there and the forcible entry stuff. And Darren's working on RIT and we're bringing this committee together. Brass coined it beyond the academy. Is, is, and I loved it too. You want to talk about surround yourself with the right people. I'm laying in bed the other night and I'm just thinking about this and I came up with this beyond the academy term. And I'm like, I love it. It's fantastic. This is a guy. Who falls asleep thinking about this. Falls asleep <laughs> thinking. So this is who you. For, Man after for, my own heart. Yeah, yeah. For all, all you all you folks out there that are doing this for the right reason and want to get in, find those like-minded people like him. Find the beyond the academy type program where it's taught by guys that care, even if it's two or three days and you don't have to leave being an expert in anything, but expose yourself. You're not getting a certificate that really means anything, but I have heard like Miller was talking about at FDIC, a bunch of chiefs from Ontario saying, we don't care about your 1006 course. And I'm sure they still do. So I'm not sure. taking anything away from it, yeah. but we want the guys that have done the forcible entry course, the one day advanced forcible entry or two day, whatever. Or, and we want to put those programs together, just throwing ladders for a day or advanced vent enter search. And those important ones that don't really mean anything probably to HR, mm. but the fire chiefs know coming in that, Hey, I know these applicants have a more advanced look at how we actually perform the job, right? Because all the JPRs from NFPA or most of them aren't very practical, right? The way we have to teach throwing ladders. It's, I hate teaching it because it's like, well, that's not how we throw ladders, especially, especially on a smaller a, department. That right? was what I was going to yeah, say, exactly. especially like, a small track. Well, yeah. Okay. But you guys do allow here, we're going to get this done and then not to mess you up. Remember, you need to do this for your test, but here's also right. then what you can expect. And here's some other ways And, to and it's about. important to learn those basic things, sure right? I'm going to say the proper political answer sure it here. Is. It is important to learn the basics, but once you know how to safely pick up the ladder, then let's Let's go and actually throw the ladder by yourself and be able to get that up because there isn't someone coming to give just you a hand. Just as safe. Just as safe, <laughs> right? And maybe better, definitely faster. So safer of For getting everybody. a knockdown on the fire and yeah. the people that may be trapped. So let's shift gears here then and let's talk about family, the brotherhood, whatever you want to call it, like the family, the fire service. Like what's your take on, you'll both have a bit of a different take on it, right? Like so where you've come from, what it was before, what it meant to you. Does it exist still? Has it changed? Is it changed for the better, for the worse? What's your take on where it's been, where we're at? Again, when I cut my teeth was in Tilsonburg in a firehouse, one station firehouse. When I started, we knew every firefighter that was alive and retired that still lived in that town that had once served. The old guys would come to the firehouse. The new guys met them. It was tight. And some of the things that made us tight are things you can't do today without getting sued and all kinds of things. And and this is where Gord's going to say, okay, he's got the gray hair and he's going to be this politically incorrect person. But part of my introduction initiation to the fire service was I sat in a chair and got electrocuted <laughs> by a bunch of the old retired guys. And there was a bunch more to it. It was becoming part of that team and being kind of like the old days in, when the airborne guys used to get their wings pinned onto their chest, literally, right? Like Cops was, get pepper sprayed and tased. Yeah. So it was... It was. <laughs> I'm not advocating yeah. electrocuting people, yeah. but I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. that as part of their training, they do get electrocuted and tased. Or but tased it was, and it was something that they had done for 50 or 60 years where the people come in, they sit down, might or might not have been alcohol in the room, and, and you sat in this chair and they asked you questions. And if they didn't like your answer, they gave you a jolt. And But when it was done, I was part of that team forever. And to speak to it this September coming up, I go back and Sarah goes back 
and we go back and we volunteer at their steak barbecue and we go to the, like I, I am welcome in that firehouse any day anytime so is there a way to do that now in a way that's not that done like that to get the same effect out of it i think one of the big things that had a negative impact on it was the 24-hour shifts because when you used to finish your round of nights your 14-hour night shifts and you finished you'd go out with your crew for breakfast right the 24 hour, I see it as that tightness, even as, as far of a, a crew, they don't come in. And I've been to some firehouses and trained where they're all sitting together at the kitchen table and, and they talking about their kids' soccer games. And then I've gone to other ones where the driver's over in this room doing something, the captain's in his office. Yeah, like they're in the four corners of the station. So how do you fix that? I'm not 100% sure. Is it the same as what it was 25 or 30 years ago? I can tell you from my experience when I retired, no, it is not. It is not a tight-knit group. There's probably, though, negative things about that environment before. Or do you see it, it was all positive? Or were there some things like, well, we could have done that better, have been kinder about that? Or I'm trying to play the other side here. Yeah, so you're playing the other side. What we used to do to people and to bring them in, you were tough on them. You, if they couldn't cut it and they quit, they cut it and they quit, and that was okay. It was like, okay, well, we didn't want that anyway. So it was kind of like one of us, one of us, right? Like that kind of thing. But in a group that maybe is dysfunctional, that isn't always healthy. No, but we were tight. What I will say is because of that, at three o'clock in the morning, I could have phoned any person on that list and they would have been at my house and, and I did it. I went through some personal stuff early on and I phoned those people at three o'clock in the morning in a bad place. Sure. I was picked up in five minutes. It can still be there. So what do we need to do to make that there without maybe all of that other stuff that isn't okay? That since when you're there living it, it is what it is, but. And it worked out for you, but maybe it wouldn't work out for everybody. I can tell you it didn't work out for everybody, right? So what does that mean? And what does it look like for me? I think it's in that culture. Part of the problem is there's a lot of entitlement coming into the fire service and that entitlement has carried over to. I'm not here to serve today. I'm here and you owe me something for being here. And I don't know. Like, I mean, Scott, these are huge questions. That yeah. I just, that's I mean, what I do. I ask yeah. the huge questions. And, <laughs> and I mean, I can, I, can, I can give you Gord's opinion again. Like, do I think the way that I went through it is the healthiest? Right? Is the, I'm going to no. Uh, and again, you want to go back, like, let's just take that back to. It's all in context yeah, of the time, too. Context of the time, yes. but context of. Like, did we know that mental health was the thing back then? No. What did you do? There was a bottle of whiskey in the rescue truck. Right. If it was so like the, the, I think this is what I'm driving at is I really love to do here about, and my dad was in the service before me. So I do know the context of the time, but we are here now, but we still want the same expectation, like blood drained from your head realization that this is not a joke. So I, I talk recently more about having a foot in each world, like in the, this is not a joke. This is not a game. This is the tough part. And then there's the realization of understanding people and scaffolding them and supporting them and their mental health and them as a human being. And that's the love part. I guess we're all trying to now in this time, trying to marry these two things up and like, how do we do that properly? And I haven't found the exact recipe yet, but I guess that's why I asked the question to get feedback. Yeah, and I I say, if you ever find the right recipe. Well, I think in a clumsy way, we're working towards it in some fashion, right? And it's needed. And I think identifying number one, that mental health, and like I say, you go back to mission people, yourself kind of thing in there, and you putting it on a plane. If we aren't managing all three, then we can't do the one. 
right? So that's an, even today for me sitting here looking at it from that outside is a bit of an epiphany, but it makes perfect sense. I think the biggest thing is, is we need to hire people with the passion. I've said this with students and Jesse's heard me. I will take somebody that knows nothing. And if they're passionate, I can train them to be the best firefighter that's going out. Because it won't just be gourd training them. I will bring in all the other resources that we have to make sure they're exposed to the right attitudes, mentalities, and all those good things. So hire, I think that's where it's, you want to get that firehouse culture. That's the, that, that right thing. It starts at bringing them in. And does it come down to respect? And no matter what's happening within that crew and that if the person individually feels respected by the people and accepted, because maybe you still felt respected and accepted at that point. I did a hundred percent. Once I got out of that chair, I was in that group for life. Right. But you didn't feel like you were doing something you didn't want to do or you were disrespected and that you had to do it to get the acceptance. That's different. That's when you'd be going through a hazing that you don't want to do and you feel horrible about to gain acceptance from a group. Yeah, no. And what I'm going to say, hazing was too strong of a word. It was more, I'm going to say shenanigans. And when I talk about I was electrocuted, it wasn't, it was a nine volt battery shock. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like like the the old joke hand buzzer, handshake. Yeah, yeah. Like that's what I'm saying. Like when I'm talking, I'm not saying like we got fried or anything like that. So, but it was more shenanigans. I was accepted into their group. And that's how I felt when I left that. Like I was accepted into their. And so if the, if the group is healthy Mm -hmm. on all aspects and they're mutually respectful, then that's the group you want to be accepted into. And they want someone that, that is like-minded in that way, healthy and mutually respected. You're not getting accepted into a group that isn't toxic. I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but I guess I'm using non-healthy or diseased or not functional. But as a new firefighter, you're a product of the environment that they put you in. So again, depending on your fire department, if you get put onto a crew that's going to work and train and wants you to be the best, then you are going to be a good firefighter because you will thrive in that environment. If you get put onto a crew that they come in and they sit in the lazy boys, then you're going to thrive in that environment, knowing every line from whatever movie it was that you just watched. What's your take on it, Jesse? Like for brotherhood, the family, how do we maintain it? Where are we at? It was definitely different depending on what kind of service you're in. So again, being on a small department for my career department, I think it's really good. We have a good brotherhood, familyhood, whatever you want to say, where the chief right from the top, he wants that familyhood. So if one of the guy's son is playing soccer, then get in that truck and go to that soccer game. And I think that really helps. But ultimately, it's on that crew to maintain that, right? And I agree with Gordon. The one negative thing I think about the 24s is that it really has affected the morale in the fire service, right? Because you don't get off shift at five o'clock and then go have some beers or you're too tired in the morning. So it's really important. And I'm lucky I'm on such a good crew where we're really, really tight to do things outside of the fire service as well. So being at the firehouse is it's important and I think training is going to help instill that brotherhood. The other thing I think that's affected is we go to less fires, right? And when you're going to less fires, you're not, you don't have that connection in that same way where you just had each other's back, right? And you go a lot of shifts without a fire. So and that's where you build respect for yourself and respect for your crew. Right. Yeah. You see, right. oh, yeah, hey, he's, he or she's got it. They know what they're doing in there and they, right. I don't have to worry. Or right? I was so, concerned that I wasn't going to be good at that. And I was. Right. It, right. Both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that it's a lot tougher when you don't have that. That's why policing and fire and military are so much tighter than so many other industries out there and going to less and less fires. I think that does affect it. 
But then in the volunteer world too, it's completely different, right? Where when I first started, it was very similar, not as quite the same as Gord's experience, but we were very tight and we did get together monthly and Christmas was a big thing and the the summer pool party and stuff. And that's really fell to the wayside. And with COVID, that's made things worse, right? You can't get together with people. We're we're social creatures. And now you're saying, okay, you, you can't see the people. And if you get to the station, you're on standby, only one truck's only needed. Well, be separate and don't talk to each other and don't find out about each other's personal lives. And I think that's, it's huge. It really affects us in a negative way. So I just want to add too, like with the idea of the family, the fire service, I love getting back to the academy and I wasn't able to make it, but you guys recently ran a barbecue for the, all the instructors and the staff, like, and family are welcome and just come and just let's hang out and, and take a breather for a moment because we're all work, 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 work. So like be grateful, right? For each other, for the opportunity for this group that we have. So I think you're doing what you can, even at the academy level, for your people to make that feel like a family. It's really great. Very important. Like, without the team, we're nothing, is what it is. And yeah, hearing from so many buddies on different departments and stuff, it is like that. You bring your iPad to work or whatever, and you do your truck checks in the morning, and then everyone scurries. Unless you get a call, you meet up at the fire truck. But the rest of the day is... You're all separated and I think it's terrible, right? And that's a lot of leadership with the captain or the lieutenant. Like that's the leadership part of the fire department. There's no reason in the world that the captain can't say, hey, we all eat dinner together. Talk to me about the students that you've heard back from that are thriving, that look back on the moments that they had with you. They grabbed it and they ran with it. Or, And I know there's people that have gone through the program that end up working for you. So talk to me about that. I know we get stuck in the, here are the problems because we're problems and solutions people. We want to maintain it. This is our house. We're protecting it on a fire service level at an academy level, right? But talk to me about the upward spiral, the stuff that keeps you going, that you've seen these successes with people. I personally, I love getting the email that says, hey, we I just got hired on this department and I'm so excited. And usually every old guy says to the new guy that gets hired, gives them their advice. Hey, write a letter to yourself for the, the day you got hired for your for a tough day. But I love it. I mean, we have books of all of our boot camps and, and as many as we find out and we know about, we put little fire truck stickers on their picture when they get a job and they get hired and stuff like that. And it's proud. And the ones that are successful and they go on and you see them on Instagram and you see them, I'm not going to lie. I, I have a little bit of a pride spot in my heart. It makes me feel good. I was hoping for that person. I was pulling for them. Yeah, I was hoping for them. I was pulling for them. They're ecstatic that they did it and they made it. And And we're all better for it. Yeah, and part of it is too, you know, in this world that we live in as a fire academy, we see people that seem to be successful with very little, comes easy for them. And they got out and they were successful and good on them. And then we see that person that struggled for three or four years and then they finally land, the grinder. The grinder lands, gets the call to play in the big league and you're like ecstatic for the grinder. We all love an underdog. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) because a lot of those grinders, and again, you look for, what do I look for in an academy or on a fire ground when I was a chief and stuff and I'm looking at people, when the training's done or the call is done, Who's hiding? Who's working? Who's cleaning up? Who's the last one there? They're rough around the edges, so they don't do interviews as well, but you know they're going to be the hardest worker on that fire ground and at the station. That makes me proud. And, And I'll say like 15 years or so that I've trained in various different manners that had the opportunity to touch a lot of people that have made this a career. 
And I hope that that touch has been positive. That's my goal. I mean, you have to see it as if you never instruct and never handed anything down, the only chance you have to affect the life is if you go on that call and you directly affect the life. But if you've taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of firefighters and some of them go on to become great firefighters and how many more people are you actually helping? Pay it forward. As far as leaderships and company officer stuff and things like that, I love John Maxwell's The Five Levels of Leadership where he starts and he goes through it. And in our officer courses and instructor courses, he has a video out and I play that because it's so real. It's you never truly are finished until you've replicated yourself and then they've replicated themselves. It's that whole passing it down thing, right? So we're starting them, we're going, we're getting to this place. I've done it with Jesse where he came up, I called him my pad one for years. He got hired full time. I'm like, okay, we've done that part. And now he's done it where he's put people into being full time. Yeah. It's okay to realize that you're replaceable because we all are. We eventually, we need to be replaced. So who do you want to leave in your stead to replace you? Right. Anyway, that's enough from Gord on that. I find I'm quite proud of the fact that that's. What about you, Jesse, about getting feedback from people and hearing where they're at now and. Kind of the same thing, especially what you said at the end there. It's nice. Obviously, the students and stuff, it's great to know that they got hired and especially the ones that they really earned it or they worked so hard for it. But it's nice to do that, like you said, with instructors. So you have a new instructor that comes in that's green, that is a decent firefighter and whatnot, doesn't have maybe a ton of experience, but then helping mold them into that phenomenal instructor. So, you know, when you leave the room, the students are getting the same level of teaching that yourself or Gord or Cadiz or whoever would do. We're all trying to. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. And that part's kind of fun because, and Gord really taught me even about that, how the importance of you got to train the people to be able to do what you do. And then you can start your next project, right? And build and build and build, right? It's like risk kind of in that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> makes things run a lot smoother and you just know that things are, are being done properly. Yeah, because if you hold it close to your chest and it's like, well, you want to ego-wise just hold on to it and no one else can teach us the way I teach it, then when you're done, then it's gone. And probably wasn't the right thing to be teaching in the first place. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, before we finish off, in your notes, I know you mentioned Ted and Barry bromance, and then you just put wife number one in, <laughs> right in two. So that, that, that's super interesting to me. So now you're going to have to expand on what the bromance is and why they're wife number one and two. They're two of my best friends in the world. And, and like I said, we've grown up and taken our fire service journey kind of together. And we talk about that family and, and brotherhood and sisterhood and familyhood thing. We've been through the thick and thin of it together. And I think we've been good for each other's mental health and pillars. They call it the bromance because people that know us know that every morning, depending on who's going on shift or who's doing what, there's a text message and it happens and and it goes on all day. And Sarah will sit there and and Sarah will say, she's wife number three behind those two. Like it's they they come first. So if if she's talking to me and and it rings and it's Ted or Barry and, and we have a group chat and it's every morning and we look after each other. We check in with one another. If somebody, Ted has a bad call and he says something about it, we make sure that we're checking in with them. And, so amongst and this chaos, in. you have yeah. this grounding rod. Yeah, hundred percent. And and without those guys, I wouldn't be who I am today and, and think that we, we all need that and it's important. And yeah, as far as mentors go, I learn from them every day. They learn from me and it's just having that stability piece and it's there. And 
it just goes back to everything we were talking about in the fire service. And, and that's how we, we got together and we met and we've known each other for years. We joined a volunteer fire department together. A tribe. And, and we're a tribe. And, and regardless of where we've went in our careers, that group and that core group has stayed together all the way through. And what about for you, Jesse? Like, what are your grounding rods? There's so many. I mean, fortunately, being at the academy, I think it's a big mix of obviously having Gord there and but all the other instructors that come in and then those close friends that you've been with right from the beginning, Miller and Kovac. And then my crew, my crew is huge, I think. I talk about the importance of training at work and stuff, and I do think it's important, but I also think it's so important for those Sundays to just sit around the table and just hash out all the world's problems. And with that, when you talk about all those world issues and stuff, you really take a deep dive into each other's personal lives. Everything kind of gets brought up. So I'd say my crew at work is very helpful and true family, right? You spend more time with them than almost anyone else, you know, other than my girlfriend and stuff. Right. <laughs> You're with them more than anybody else. Right. So right. I'd say they're, yeah, that'd probably be my answer. Who must be a saint too, because uh, of all the time and energy you're putting into so many different areas of your life, having your girlfriend like, oh, be such so a huge supportive. support. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not an easy person to be with. I'm <laughs> When you love the fire service so much, it, it could definitely probably take a bit of a toll on a relationship. And I think as long as you're transparent, and she's in the fire service as well, she's a dispatcher. And so that uh, I think helps because she gets it but yeah and obviously she helps a lot with the stress and whatnot and she's starting to get involved in the business side of things as well which is nice to see so it's going to be that whole transition piece i look at it as a positive it's kind of a transition from uh, gordon sarah and i don't say this in a negative way being the the keepers of the the vault to jesse and Kristen going to be the keepers of the vault and there's a, a couple of years there that that's going to take place but. but i remember transitioning you know into a role and then had that mentor and then they gradually hand off the reins to you but then they're always there for you right. to when even when they're gone but you, you're able to ring them whenever you want and say hey i just i'm having this problem what is it so like to have that there is such a, a safety net i think for a while until you can do it without the net mm-hmm. right yeah just one more thing because i don't want to leave people out but i just again feel a lot of gratitude to towards having so many good people in my life that really are there all the time and stuff. So definitely fortunate. There are people out there that you might get disheartened by thinking they're in the service and they're not really doing it justice, but joining SFA and then I meet all these, like oh, like the more, there's just so many good people. Right. <laughs> and, and they're <laughs> yeah. all fired up. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> The more of that that you get in your life, the the better you feel. Like you need that finding like minded people. Yeah, and there's and there's a lot of them, and I think there's more of them than the other. But like, but very often the negative gets the focus. And I think we talked before we started about we want to end this on like a positive right. note that there's so many good people, and there's so many good people waiting to get into the service. And we hope that if they have access to come to SFA that they're really going to be in a good place with good people that are going to help them to grow properly. When you talked about that positive piece, like ninety percent of your problems are caused by 10% of say people or whatever it is. When you look at that and you go, oh, that sounds like a pretty negative statement. No, that means 90% are rocking it pretty good. Yeah. Like I haven't, I've I've said to Megan recently, like I I haven't met an instructor yet from the academy that I'm even kind of lukewarm on. It's crazy because like I've met instructors along the way where I'm like rolling my eyes or like, I don't want to be like that person or I guess I got to suffer through this. It's all like, I'm stoked. Like I have been stoked. So good on you guys for like picking the right people. And yeah. What I'd say to that, actually a quote that my cousin kind of, he's not in the fire service, but he kind of came up with and he said it a couple of weeks ago, there's no such thing as peer pressure unless you have bad peers. 
So uh, if you're around a bunch of good peers, then you want them to be peer pressuring you, right? And sure. training more, or doing, yeah. you know, if you're hanging you don't feel around pressured. Yeah. people that do heroin, then maybe you don't want to hang around <laughs> them and get peer pressured into doing heroin. But sure. <laughs> when you're getting peer pressured into push yourself and become better, then yeah. peer pressure is a fantastic thing. It doesn't feel like pressure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It feels uplifting. Right. It feels like a relief. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I can add one thing if you want, just, well, I grad, when we do grad with our students, I, I always give the students a challenge. So once they finish the program and it's to think about right now, so anyone who's listening, that's maybe getting into the fire service or maybe already in the fire service, think about right now, how badly you want the job and you do anything to get that job. And unfortunately, so many firefighters get into the role and they get bitter, disgruntled and, and things like that is to try and remember back to the moment of realizing how badly you want the job and always keep that, always... And the moment you get the call, too. Right, absolutely. Like, I'll never forget it, ever. Right, right exactly. And just maintain that, right? If you get back from a medical call and you're five minutes after your shift is ending, you're getting all mad that captain didn't put you in for overtime. It's like, don't worry. Would you have cared about that two years ago before you got hired? No, you wouldn't have. You'd be like, I'll work for free for a year, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, don't, I, don't I, forget that feeling of how badly you want the job. I watched a clip recently. I've seen it circulating around a few times that allow yourself to get mad for five minutes. Right. Like it's okay to be upset about whatever it is and like blow the lid off, like be super mad, but give yourself five minutes and then you got to somehow yeah, move on. And that's, that's important too. That's just, that's a good point yeah. for sure. So maybe that's it too. You get back, you're going to get irritated. Of course you are, <laughs> of course, but don't let it end your career or I don't know. Change I've, the I've never got upset. It down. No, never. Never. Yeah, no, no. I've never seen yeah. you upset. <laughs> <laughs>